Hey, what's up everybody? Worldwide Jew here, and on this episode of the Worldwide Jew Podcast, we are going to be talking about Ashkenazi Jews. The sections are of this episode are as follows. Some general information, observances, and definitions of Ashkenazi Jews. More general information on Ashkenazi Jews, such as language, history of the name, and a, and a brief history. Difference between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Sephardim will be covered in the next episode. Ashkenazi food. Explaining that Jews are not descendants of the Khazars and are not European and the fact that all Ashkenazi Jews are 30th cousins. A history of the Ashkenazi Jews. Ashkenazi Jews in Israel. And finally, explaining my own personal experience as an Ashkenazi Jew. More information on the topics that I talk about can be found in links that I'll be attaching in the description of this episode. As well, there will be time marks in the description for different sections of the episode. Now, first off, I'll be defining Ashkenazi Jews religiously, culturally, and ethnically. Religious Jews have minhagim, or customs, in addition to halakha, or religious law, and different interpretations of law. Different groups of religious Jews um, in, different area, in different geographic areas historically adopted different customs and interpretations. On certain issues, Orthodox Jews are required to uh, follow the customs of their ancestors and do not believe they have the option of picking and choosing. For this reason, observant Jews at times find it important for religious reasons to ascertain who their household religious ancestors are in order to know what customs their household should follow. These times include, for example, when two Jews of different ethnic backgrounds marry, when a non-Jew converts to Judaism and determines what customs to follow for the first time, when a lapsed or less observant Jew returns to traditional Judaism and must determine what was done in his or her family's past. In this sense, Ashkenazic re refers both to a family ancestry and to a body of binding and a body of customs binding on Jews of that ancestry. Reform Judaism, which does not necessarily follow these minhagim, did nonetheless originate among Ashkenazi Jews. In a religious sense, an Ashkenazi Jew is any Jew whose family's tradition and ritual follow, follows Ashkenazi practice. Until the Ashkenazi community first began to develop in the early Middle Ages, the centers of religious, Jewish religious authority were in the, were in the Islamic world at Baghdad and in Islamic Spain. Ashkenaz, Germany, was so distant geographically that it developed a minhag of, of its own. Ashkenaz Hebrew came to be pronounced in ways distinct from other forms of Hebrew. In this respect, the counterpart of Ashkenazi is Sephardic, since most, Ashken since most non Ashkenazi or Orthodox Jews follow Sephardic rabbinical authorities, whether or not they are ethnically Sephardic. By tradition, a Sephardic or Mizrahi woman who marries into an Orthodox or Haredi Ashkenazi Jewish family raises her children to be Ashkenazi Jews. Conversely, an Ashkenazi woman who marries a Sephardi or Mizrahi man is expected to take on Sephardic practice and the children inherit a Sephardic identity, though in practice many families compromise. A convert generally follows the practice of the base din, which is like the, like the converters or like the Jewish court that converted him or her. With the integration of Jews from around the world in, in Israel, North America, and other places, the religious definition of an Ashkenazi Jew is blurring, especially outside Orthodox Judaism. Culturally, an Ashkenazi Jew can be identified by the concept of Yiddishkeit, which means Jewish in, Jewishness in the, in the Yiddish language. Yiddishkeit is specifically the Jewishness of Ashkenazi Jews. Before the Chalascha, which means uh, Jewish, emancipation, um, Jewish Enlightenment, and the emancipation of Jews in Europe, this meant the study of Torah and Talmud for men, and a family communal life governed by the observance of Jewish law for men and women. From the Ryland to Riga to Romania, 
Most Jews played in liturgical Ashkenaz Hebrew and spoke Yiddish in their secular lives. But with modernization, Yiddishkeit now encompasses not just Orthodoxy and Hasidism, but a broad, but a broad range of movements, ideologies, practices, and traditions in which Ashkenazi Jews have some have participated and somehow retained the sense of Jewishness. Although a far smaller number of Jews still speak Yiddish, Yiddishkeit can be identified in manners of speech, in styles of humor, and patterns of association. Broadly speaking, a Jew is one who associates culturally with Jews, supports Jewish institution, reads Jewish books and periodicals, attends Jewish movies and theater, travels to Israel, visits historical synagogues, and so forth. It is a definition that applies to Jewish culture in general, and to Ashkenazi Yiddishkeit in particular. As Ashkenazi Jews moved away from Europe, mostly in the form of Aliyah to Israel, or immigration to North America, or, and other English-speaking areas such as South Africa and Europe, particularly France, particularly France and Latin America, the geographic isolation that gave rise to Ashkenazim has given way to mixing with other cultures and with non-Ashkenazi Jews who, similarly, are no longer isolated in distinct geographic locales. Hebrew has replaced Yiddish as the primary Jewish language for, mo for many Ashkenazi Jews, although many Hasidic and Haredi Jew groups continue to use Yiddish in daily life. Uh, just a side note here, there are numerous Ashkenazi Jewish Anglophones and Russian speakers as well, such as, you know, myself, I speak English, although English and Russian are not originally Jewish languages. France blended, uh, now going to the case study of, of France, France, uh, like France's Jewish community, For France's blended Jewish community is typical of the cultural recombination that is going on among Jews throughout the world. Although France expelled its original Jewish population in the Middle Ages, by the time of the French Revolution, there were two distinct populations. One consisted of the Sephardic Jews, originally refugees from the Inquisition and concentrated in the Southwest, while the other community was Ashkenazi, concentrated in formerly German Alsace, 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 and mainly speaking a German dialect similar to Yiddish. A third community of provincial Jews living in combat Venison were technically outside France and later absorbed into Sephardim. The two communities were so separate and different that the National Assembly emancipated them separately in 1790 and 1791. But after emancipation, a sense of uni unified French Jewry emerged, especially when France was wrecked by the Dreyfus Affair in the 1890s. In the 1920s and 30s, Ashkenazi Jews from Europe arrived in large numbers as refugees from anti-Semitism, the Russian Revolution, and the economic turmoil of the Great Depression. By the 1930s, Paris had a vibrant Yiddish culture and many Jews were involved in diverse political movements. After the Vichy years and the Holocaust, the French Jewish population was augmented once again, first by Ashkenazi refugees from Central Europe, and later by Sephardi immigrants and refugees from North Africa. Africa, many of them speaking French. Ashkenazi Jews did not record their traditions or achievements by text. Instead, these traditions were passed down orally from one generation to the next. The desire to maintain pre-Holocaust traditions relating to Ashkenazi culture has often been met with criticism uh, by Jews in Eastern Europe. Reasoning for this could be related to the development of a new style of Jewish arts and culture developed by the Jews of uh, Israel during the 1930s and 40s, which in conjunction with the decimation of European Ashkenazi Jews and their culture by, Nazi by the Nazi regime made it easier to assimilate to the new style of ritual rather than to repair the old traditions. This new style of tradition was referred to as the Mediterranean style and is noted for its simplicity and metaphorical 
rejuvenation of Jews abroad. This was intended to replace the Galut traditions, which were more sorrowful, which were more sorrowful in practice. So basically, the Galut means uh, exile, and uh, like so, I guess before um, Ashkenazi Jewish tradition was you know like sad and sorrowful, but like when they moved to France, it became more lively. And uh, yeah, uh, in France in the nineteen nineties, yet another Ashkenazi Jewish way began to arrive from countries of uh, of the former Soviet Union in Central Europe. This result, this result is a pluralistic Jewish community that still has some distinct elements of both Ashkenazi and Sephardic culture. But in France, it is becoming much more difficult to sort out the two, and, it's the, and a distinctly French Jewishness has emerged. In an ethnic sense, an Ashkenazi Jew is one, who, is one whose ancestries can be traced to the, the Jews who settled in Central Europe. For roughly a, th a thousand years, the Ashkenazim were a productively isolated population in Europe. Despite living in many countries, with little inflow or outflow from migration, conversion, or intermarriage with other groups, including other Jews, human geneticists have argued that genetic variations have been identified that show high frequencies among Ashkenazi Jews, but not in the central, not in the general European population. Be they for paternal markers, Y chromosome haplotypes, and for matrilineal markers, melotypes. Since the middle of the 20th century. Many Ashkenazi Jews have intermarried, both with members of the uh, both with members of other Jewish communities and with people of other nations and faiths. A 2006 study found Ashkenazi Jews to be a clear homogenous genetic subgroup. Strikingly, regardless of the place of origin, Ashkenazi Jews can be can be grouped in the same genetic cohort. That is, regardless of whether an Ashkenazi Jew's ancestors came from Poland, Russia, Hungary, Lithuania, or any other place with the historical Ashkenazi Jewish population. They belong to the same ethnic group. Now what I'll be covering is some general information, my own personal observances, the language that Ashkenazi Jews speak, why Ashkenazi Jews are called Ashkenazi Jews, and a brief history of the Ashkenazi Jews. Uh, a more detailed history will you know, be later will be addressed later in the episode, and uh, yeah. Ashkenazi Jews are Jews who are a Jewish diaspora population who coalesce in the Holy Roman Empire around the end of the first millennium. Population estimates estimate is estimated to be anywhere from 10 to 10 to 11.2 million and constitute about 80% of all Jews living worldwide. Most Ashkenazi Jews live in the United States of America and not Israel, which is, you know, surprising because uh, most of the population of other Jewish ethnic groups, you know, such as Sephardim or, you know, Mizrahim, you know, live in Israel. While there are Ashkenaz Jews in lots of countries throughout the world, the ones that Wikipedia la uh, labels that have populations of over 1,000 are USA, Israel, Russia, Argentina, United Kingdom, which is England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, Canada, France, Germany, Ukraine, Australia, South Africa, Belarus, Brazil, Hungary, Chile, Netherlands, Moldova, Italy, Poland, Mexico, Sweden, Latvia, Romania, Austria, New Zealand, Colombia, Azerbaijan, Lithuania, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Ireland, and Estonia, among many others that have a population of Ashkenazi Jews that is lower than 1,000. What I tend to notice is that for countries in the, America, in, in the Americas, North and South, where English is spoken as a common language, Ashkenazi Jewish culture is more dominant uh, than uh, Sephardic and Mizrahi culture, which originate from the Iberian Peninsula, Peninsula and Central Asia, Asia, respectively, which will be covered in later episodes. For Europe, I notice that in countries that are not France, Portugal, and Spain, Ashkenazi Jewish culture tends to be more dominant. In Africa, the only country that has a majority Ashkenazi Jewish culture 
is South Africa, along with countries with knowledgeable Jewish populations, populations that I'll be covering in future episodes. North African countries have Sephardic culture as more dominant, as more dominant, while Ethiopia has the dominance of Beta Israel culture. For Asia, Ashkenazi culture is dominant only in Russia, while in various countries throughout Asian Asia, such as Uzbekistan, India, China, and Yemen, are where dominated by unique Jewish cultures of their own. These cultures will be these cultures will be covered in future episodes. In Oceania, Ashkenazi Jewish culture is dominant in all the countries because Jews from mainly the English-speaking world were Ashkenazi migrated there. So those will be countries such as you know New Zealand and uh, Australia. Uh, okay, and uh, yeah, now uh, we're going to be talking about language. The traditional diaspora language of Ashkenazi Jews is Yiddish, a Germanic language with elements of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Slavic languages, developed after they had moved into Northern Europe, beginning with Germany and France in the Middle Ages. For centuries, they used Hebrew only as a sacred language, until the revival of Hebrew as a common language in Israel. Throughout their time in Europe, Ashkenazim has made, have made many important contributions to its philosophy, scholarship, literature, art, music, and science. Uh, today, Ashkenazi Jews mostly speak English, Hebrew, and Russian, along with various local languages. Some Ashkenazi Jews do speak Yiddish in day-to-day -day lives, but most don't, so it's kind of a dying-out language. However, I personally do notice some isolated words that are brought into daily conversations in Yiddish, such as uh, oy vey, no, oy vey, which is like a, you know, like ay 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 or no in uh, English, and uh, chutzpah, like, you know, used in a sentence, you know, why do you have, like, the chutzpah to do that, but, like, you know, like, in, like, a bad way, you know, not like a, like a good way. So, uh, yeah. I tend to notice that when most people think of Jews or say Jews in the Western world, the first image that comes to mind is Ashkenazi Jews, especially famous ones who live in the United States. You know, not Sephardic or Mizrahi Jews, although, you know, there are, they are Jews. The term Ashkenazi refers to Jewish settlers who established communities along the Rhine River, Rhine River in Western Germany and in Northern France dating back to the Middle Ages. Once there, they adapted their traditions carried from Babylon, Israel and the Western Mediterranean to their new environment. The Ashkenazi religious rite developed in cities such as Mainz, Worms and Troyes. The name Ashkenaz was applied in the Middle Ages to Jews living along the Rhine River in Northern France and Western Germany. The center of Ashkenazi Jews later spread to Poland-Lithuania Commonwealth, and now there are Ashkenazi settlements all over the world. The term Ashkenaz became identified primarily with German customs and descendants of German Jews. The name Ashkenazi came from a man in the Torah named Ashkenaz, who was, like, who was the eldest son of Gomer, who was the grandson of Noah through Noah's son Shepet. This makes Ashkenaz the great-grandson of Noah. Ashkenaz is the biblical name of a grandson, Shepet, the ancestor of the Romans, perhaps because the area has been part of the Roman Empire, the region, its language, and its non-Jewish inhabitants were associated with that name. In, in time, the Jews living there became known as Ashkenazim as well. The term Ashkenaz is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible in Genesis 10.3 and 1 Chronicles 1.6 1, as a dwelling place of Noah's son, Noah's son, Shapet, ancestors, ancestor of later Europeans. In Jeremiah 51.27, it seems to be part of Asia. Asia, perhaps Asia Minor, and is located northwest of Palestine. How this place name eventually supplanted earlier descriptive names for German Jewish lands, such as the Rhineland, Rhinus, or the land of King Lothar, Lothier, is not clear. Although Ashkenaz referred 
in the Middle Ages not only to German lands. The term eventually included, uh, although Ashkenaz referred in the Middle Ages only to German lands, the term eventually included northern France and England, as well as northern Italy uh, and parts of the central uh, parts of Central Europe, like Bohemia. I'll just say it again. Although Ashkenaz referred referred in the Middle Ages to only to Jews, although Ashkenaz referred in the Middle Ages only to Jews in German lands, the term eventually included northern France and England, as well as northern Italy and parts of Central Europe, like Bohemia. As Jews migrated into the Pol Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the term brought into include Eastern European Jews as well. Jews of early Ashkenaz brought the ger spoken German dialect of Yiddish as well as local customs and practices of Jewish living in Slavic territories. The Jewish population of Eastern Europe and Central Eastern <clears throat> the Jewish population of Eastern and Central Europe became being distinct from the Jews of the Holy Land Israel by use of the name Ashkenazi in the er early medieval period of history. At that time, there was a Christian tradition of calling areas of Jews, Jews, Jewish settlements by biblical names, which is how Ashkenazi Jews received their name. By the later period, by the later medieval period, the term Ashkenazi was used for the German and French Jewish populations alone and was adopted by the Jewish people of the area and scholars themselves. Although strictly speaking, Ashkenazim refers to Jews of Germany, the term has come to refer broadly to Jews from Central, Central and Eastern Europe. Jews first reached the interior of Europe by following trade routes along waterways during the 8th and 9th centuries. One might ask, what are the different customs and such between Ashkenazi Jews and other Jews such as Sephardic, which we cover next episode? The opposite, in quotation marks, of Ashkenazi Jews, of Ashkenazi is Sephardic, as explained earlier, as explained earlier, so in this section I will be explaining the different customs or minchagim of Ashkenazi Jews in comparison to Sephardic Jews. For the last 1,000 years, the Jewish people have, for the most part, been grouped into two categories, Ashkenaz and Sephardic. Cont contemporary Ashkenazim are Yiddish-speaking Jews and, descends and descendants of Yiddish-speaking Jews. Sephardim originate in the Iberian Peninsula and the Arabic, land and Arabic lands. While there are differences in culture, language, genetics, and nuisances of ritual observance, the commonality between the two groups are much stronger than what divides them. Thus, a Sephardi from Morocco and an Ashkenazi from Moscow would immediately find common ground in a prayer service that is 95% identical in, mitz in mitzvah, commandments of observance, and of course, the Hebrew language. While essentials of Judaism are the same for all Jewish people, there are some differences in Ashkenazi and Sephardic observance. Here are some of the more pronounced differences in no particular order. There are 22 letters and 12 vowel markers in standard written Hebrew, each one with a different sound. Pronunciation evolved over time, and, Sephardim, and the Sephardim have lost uh, nuanced definition differences between some of them, while the Ashkenazim have lost others. In addition, each tradition's in inflection was influenced by the other by other by was influenced by the language by the other languages they spoke. Thus, a Sephardic Jew refers to the Sabbath day as Shabbat, while the Ashkenazi Jew while that and the Ashkenazi will refer to the same day as Shabbis. All Jews spell this all Jews spell this word the same way. Uh, Shin, uh, Bet, and Top, which are the Hebrew letters that you use to spell Shabbat. More importantly, they observe it on the same day, in the same way. Ashkenazi traditional pronunciation pre pronunciations of Hebrew differ differ from those of other groups. The most prominent continental difference from Sephardic and Mizrahi Hebrew dialects is the pronunciation of he Hebrew letter Tav in certain Hebrew words. Historically, in 
post-vocalic vocalic on double context and isn't and is an S and not a T or a O sound. Also, from what I personally noticed that the Ashkenazi Jews add random O's, I's, S's, and O's instead of A's. For example, instead of saying Torah, it would be more common to say Torah, but to keep in mind that, he, that in Hebrew it is spelled exactly the same. Other examples include, instead of Yom, which means day, it would be said as Yoin, Yoim, or Shabbaton, which is sometimes pronounced and said as Shabbosayin. As I myself sometimes say Hebrew words in the Ashkenazi pronunciation when I pray. Uh, so some of the foods most commonly considered Jewish, gefilte fish, kishke, stuffed derma, potato kugel, pudding, knishes, and chopped liver are all Ashkenazi fare. Sephardim have an entirely different set of foods they prefer. Case in point, Ashkenazim eat cholent on Shabbat afternoon. Sephardim call their Shabbat afternoons too, hamin or dafina, spice it liberally, and cook eggs in it. Ashkenazi food will be talked about later in this episode. The majority of Jews today speak English or modern Hebrew. However, just a few generations back, most Ashkenazim, the majority in the centuries leading up to the Holocaust, spoke Yiddish, and the Spartan spoke Ladino, mostly Ladino, which is kind of their version of Yiddish, Portuguese, or Arabic. This still reflects the names that we give our children. Sephardim may have named their children Fortuna or Salvatore, Spanish equivalents of the Hebrew names Mazal and Yeshua. For example, Ashkenazi children, on the other hand, may have names like Golda or Vavel, which are Yiddish for gold and wolf, respectively. Ashkenazim store the Torah scrolls in velvet covers, which they remove before laying the scroll down flat for reading. Most Farnum keep the scrolls in hard, hard cylinders, which can be opened but not removed for reading. For 40 days before Yom Kippur, starting on the 1st of Elul, which is a Jewish month, Sephardim rise early to recite penitent prayers, also known as Salichot. Ashkenazim begin saying these on early, on early Sunday morning, just a few, day, few days prior to Rosh Hashanah. On Passover, when food containing chametz, grain that has risen, is forbidden, Ashkenazim also avoid legumes, rice, corn, and other foods known as kidneyot. Most, but not all Sephardim, have no such... Compunctions. Happily serving rice, carefully check for stray wheat kernels as a Passover delicacy. Observance of Pesach, Passover, Ashkenazi Jews tra traditionally refrain from eating legumes, grain, milk, and rice. Kino, however, has become accepted as food grain in the North American communities, whereas Spartak Jews typically do not prohibit these foods. For any Ashkenazi, a high point of the Jewish year is reciting the Kol Nidre on Yom Kippur, along with the Cantor. They will be surprised to learn that it is absent from many Spartic prayer books. Conversely, Spartan has some treasured liturgical compositions, Tanu Lefanecha, Kiel Nora Alila, and others, which Ashkenazim don't say. Both Ashkenazim and Spartan have the Bima, reading table, in the centers of the synagogue. However, typical Ashkenazi synagogue's architecture, typical Ashkenazi synagogue architecture has rows of pews or chairs facing the front of this, facing the front of the sanctuary. Along, among many Spartan, on the other hand, the seats are arranged around the room, with everyone facing towards the Torah reading table in the middle. They turn to face Jerusalem when praying Amidah. The belief uh, Amidah is like a um, prayer. Uh, the beliefs of Spartan Judaism are basically in, a, in accord with those of Orthodox Judaism. Though Spartan interpretations of Halakha, Jewish law, are somewhat different than Ashkenazi ones. The best known of these differences relate to the holiday Pesach. Uh, Spartan Jews may eat rice, corn, peanuts, and beans during the holiday. The hall, this holiday, why Ashkenazi Jews avoid them. 
Although some Sephardic Jews are less observant than others, and some individuals do not agree with all the beliefs of traditional Judaism, there is no formal organized deviation into movements as there is in Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Judaism that I mentioned in the previous that I mentioned in the previous episode, such as confirm, conservative, and reform. Historically, Sephardic Jews have been more integrated into the non-Jewish culture than Ashkenazi Jews. In Christian lands where Ashkenazi Judaism flourished, the tension between the tension between Christians and Jews was great, and Jews tended to be isolated from their non-Jewish neighbors, either voluntarily or involuntarily. In the Islamic lands where Sephardic Judaism developed, there is less segregation and oppression. Sephardic Jewish thought and culture was strongly influenced by Arabic and Greek philosophy and science. Sephardic Jews have a different pronunciation of a few Hebrew vowels and one Hebrew consonant. Though most Ashkenazim are adopting a Sephardic pronunciation now because it's because of the you know the pronunciation used in Israel, Sephardic prayer services are somewhat different from Ashkenazic ones, and Sephardim use different melodies in their services. The Yiddish language, which many people think of as the international language of Judaism, is really the language of the Ashkenazi Jews. Sephardic Jews have their own international language, Ladino, which was based on Spanish and Hebrew in the same way that Yiddish was based on German and Hebrew. Ashkenazi Jews freely uh, mix and eat fish and milk products. Not, you know, not actually milk. Some Sephardic Jews re refrain from doing so. However, in my personal experience, I know that some Ashkenazi Jews do not eat fish and actual, like, you know, liquid milk together in the case where the milk was poured, like, directly on the fish. You know, you could have, like, fish and, you know, drink a cup of milk. That's fine. But, like, if you pour, like, the milk on the fish, you know, it's not good. You can't, like, you know, uh, Ashkenazi Jews don't eat that. But, you know, we do eat uh, uh, milk and fish like milk products and fish, but Sephardic, Sephardic Jews uh, don't, tra traditionally don't. And, uh, yeah. Ashkenazi, uh, Ashkenazim are more permissive towards the uses of wigs as a hair covering for married and widow women, as were Sephardim just use a head covering such as a piece of cloth. In the case of kashrus for meat, which is, you know, kosher, conversely, Sephardic Jews have stricter requirements. This level is com commonly referred to as Beit Yosef, Beth Yosef. Meat products that are acceptable to Ashkenazi Jews as kosher may therefore be rejected by Sephardi Jews. Notwithstanding with stricter requirements for the actual slaughter, Sephardi Jews permit the rear portion of an animal after proper halakhic removal of the sciatic nerve, while many Ashkenazi Jews do not. This is not because of different interpretations of the law. Of the law. Rather, slaughterhouses could not find adequate skills for correct removal of the sciatic nerve and found it more economical to separate the hindquarters and sell them as non-kosher meat. Ashkenazi Jews often name newborn children after deceased family members, but not left their living relatives. Sephardi Jews, in contrast, often name their children after the children's grandparents, even if the grandparents are still living. A notable exception to this uh, generally liable rule is among Dutch Jews, where Ashkenazim for centuries used the naming conventions otherwise attributed exclusively to Sephardim, such as the Chutes, who were Sephardic, Jews that immigrated to London from the Netherlands during the latter part of the 19th century. Ashkenazi tefillin, which is tefillin is like a leather box with straps for the arm and head, bears some difference from, from Sephardic tefillin. In, tradi in the traditional Ashkenazic rite, the tefillin are, are wound towards the body, not away from it. Ashkenazim traditionally don tefillin, tef tefillin while standing, while other Jews uh, generally do so while sitting down. For myself personally, I wrap tefillin standing up, and I have never heard of anyone who wraps tefillin sitting down. Also, I feel like it would be more challenging and awkward to put to fill in, you know, sitting down anyways. And, uh, you know, if you're hearing this part of the podcast, you know, can you send me a video on my email or, you know, uh, on my Instagram of, you know, someone putting to fill in sitting down? 
uh, like to see that. And yeah, that'd be really cool if you do have a video or you do that yourself. That'd be really cool. Um, you know, showing the different uh, Jewish customs. Uh, the prayer shawl or talit or talis in Ashkenazi Hebrew is worn by the majority of Ashkenazi men after marriage. But Western European Ashkenazi men wear it from Bar Mitzvah. In Sephardic or Mizrahi, Mizrahi Judaism, the prayer shawl is commonly worn from early childhood. Uh, I personally, myself, wear, wear towels when I'm praying. Doesn't matter bar mitzvah or whatever. Uh, you know, I just always wear it. Um, yeah, that's what I. That's what I do. Uh, there are also a few more certain customs that Sfarim do as opposed to Ashkenazim. If you, if, and if you, and if you know any, please send me some, and I might do a little add-on episode along with this one, or talk about it in my next episode. Over time, Ashkenazim and Sfarim have developed. Different prayer liturgies, Torah services, Hebrew pronunciation, and ways of life. Originally, most Ashkenazim spoke Yiddish. Ashkenazi and Sephardi tunes for both prayer and Torah reading are different. An Ashkenazi Jew, an Ashkenazi Torah lies flat while being read, while Sephardi Torah stands up. Ashkenazi scribes developed a distinctive script. One major uh, difference is in the source used for design Jewish law. Sephardim follow the Rabbi follow Rabbi Joseph Caro. Shluchan Aruch, which is like a book on Jewish law. The Ashkenazim go by Rabbi Moses Erlersis, who wrote a commentary on the Shluchan Aruch citing Ashkenazi practice. There are many differences in there are differences in many aspects of Jewish law from which women are exempt to which which woman well, there are many differences in, in there are diff, there are differences in many aspects of Jewish law from which laws women are exempt from to what one to what uh, food one is allowed to eat on Passover. Today, many of the distinctions between Ashkenazim and Sephardim have disappeared. In both Israel and the United States today, Ashkenazim and Sephardim live side by side, though they generally have separate institutions. In Israel, political tensions continue to exist because of feelings of many on the part of many Sephardim that they have been discriminated against and don't get the respect they deserve. Historically, the political elite of the nation have been Ashkenazim. However, this is gradually changing. Shas, a religious Sephardi party, has become one of the most powerful in the country, and individual Sephardi politicians now hold powerful positions. Moroccan-born David Levy, for example, has served as foreign minister, and in July 2000, Iranian-born Moshe Katsav was elected president. Uh, it's more Mizrahi, but I guess it's in, I'm going to be explaining um, uh, this later, but um, uh, Ash... Uh, Iranian is Mizrahi, which is uh, you know Central Asian, which I'll be explaining in another episode. But the thing is that in uh, Israel, uh, it's commonly seen that like if you're not Ashkenazi, you're you're Sephardic. You follow the Sephardic rabbis, as I said before, even though you're not actually you know Sephardic. And uh, you know, however, as I said, literally just said this right now, while Iranian Jews consider themselves Sephardic, there's also another Jews group of Jews who will be covered in episode uh, well five at this point, but like three in like the main series called Mizrahi who originally from Persia and their surrounding areas who are just who are different ethnic uh, Jewish ethnic group and have different separate have and have different separate different separate customs from Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Now what we covered is Ashkenazi Jewish food. Before I start this section I just want to say that most of the Jewish food I said before seen in the media is Ashkenazi food and does not reflect other Jewish ethnic cuisines such as Fardic. While Ashkenazi cuisine, as is known today, is largely based within the context of, context of American Jewish and Ashkenazi Israeli food, many of the culinary traditions of Ashkenazi, Jew, uh, Ashkenazi Jews spring from Central and Eastern Europe after having been expelled from Western Europe in the Middle Ages. 
Jews were forced to live in poverty and were thus limited in terms of ingredients. Dishes were made with fewer components, they were not heavily spiced, and ingredients that were more flavorful had to be used sparingly. This is often why some dishes in Ashkenazi cuisine are, no, are known for being blander than dishes in Sephardic or Mizrahi cuisine. Some common uh, Ashkenazi food is gefilte fish, kishka, potato stuffed intestines, potato kugel, knishes, chopped liver, rugelach, latkes, borscht soup, uh, borscht which can be based off cabbages or borscht that can be based off beet, bagels and locks, fish spreads, chopped herring, white fish and salmon spreads, chicken soup with matzo balls or noodles, kreplach, krupnik, babka, strudel, turnovers, pierogi, pulmeni, schmaltz, grad beans, uh, chopped liver, schmaltz herring, halishkas, cabbage rolls, teglach, floodney, kompot, kolsa, choland, cow's foot jelly, noodles, lekach, and seams. I personally eat in some of these foods. Gefilte fish, which I personally eat in, is basically a fish patty that is made from fish instead of meat, such as beef or chicken. With kosher meat not always available, fish became an important staple of the Jewish diet. In Eastern Europe, it was sometimes especially reserved for a spot, as fish is not considered meat in the same way beef and poultry are. It can also be eaten with dairy products. Even though fish is parv, which means that it is not a meat nor milk product, and can be eaten with meat or milk, they are served with meat at the same when they are served with meat at the same meal. Jews will eat them during separate courses and wash or replace the dishes in between. Gefilte fish, from German gefilte stuffed fish, was traditionally made by skinning the fish steaks, usually German carp, deboning the flesh, mincing it, and sometimes mixing with finely chopped brown onions, eggs, salt or pepper, and vegetable oil. The fish skin and head were then stuffed with the mixture and poached. The religious reason for a boneless fish dish for the Sabbath is the prohibition of separating bones from food while eating. The prohibition of borer, separating. A more commonly commercially packaged product found today is the Polish gefilte fish patties or balls. Similar to canals where sugar is added to the broth, resulting in a slightly sweet taste. And this method of uh, serving evolved from the tradition of removing of the stuffing from the skin, rather than the port portioning of the entire fish uh, into serving before slices. While traditionally made with carp or whitefish, and sometimes pike, gefilte fish may be also made from any large fish, cod, haddock, or hake in the United Kingdom. There are a few ways in which I've seen gefilte fish packaged. One of the ways is that like in a log, like salami, but instead of meat, it's fish. Fish packaged in a jar with brine, to sim similar to how pickles are packaged, and homemade, meaning you can make it at home where it's hot and fresh, as opposed to the other ways where it's cold when you eat it. Also, gefilte fish may or may not be eaten with horseradish, and sometimes with a carrot on top. Vorschmack, or gitaka herring, chopped herring, is a popular appetizer on Shabbat. It's made by chopping skin bone herrings with hard-boiled eggs, sometimes onions, apples, sugar, or pepper, and a dash of vinegar. Kishke is stuffed intestine, cow, lamb, or sheep most commonly, that is stuffed with meat, uh, flour, or matzah meal, schmaltz, which is the rendered schmaltz, which is the rendered fat of chicken, and spices. Kugel, which uh, according to the de dictionary definitions is considered a pudding, pudding of some sort, but what I would consider is like a hybrid of a cake, but made with non-dessert ingredients like potatoes, vegetables, noodles, and sometimes even rice. I've never seen rice. I've seen potato kugel, I've seen vegetable kugel, I've been seen noodle kugel, but I've never seen a rice kugel. 
Uh, if you do have a picture of a rice kugel, please send it to me on my Instagram or on my email. I've seen potato, vegetable, rice, and noodle kugel, but I've never seen rice kugel, as I literally just said. Sometimes they can be sweet, and sometimes they can be savory. A kanish is an Ashkenazi Jewish snack uh, food consisting of a filling covered with dough that is typically baked and, some, and sometimes deep fried. In most traditional versions, the filling is made with entirely mashed potato, kasha, you know, I'm, I'm, if you're Russian, you know what it is, or cheese. Other varieties of fillings include sweet potato, black beans, cheese, meat, or potato. Conditions may be round, rectangular, or square. They may be entirely covered in dough, or at some point, the filling may peak out over the top. Sizes range from those that begin eating, eating in a single bite, or the herb style, to sandwich size. Chopped liver is a liver pate popular in Ashkenazi cuisine and is made from the liver of chicken. It was made to ensure nothing was wasted from meat in the middle slash medieval ages because it was expensive and difficult to come by and obtain. The dish is often made by sautéing or broil broiling liver and onions, adding hard-boiled eggs, salt and pepper, and grinding that mixture. The liver is generally used is generally calf, beef, or chicken. The quintessential fat is smalt, but Different methods and materials exist, and the exact processes and ingredients may vary from chef to chef. Chopped livers often served on matzo, or with rye bread as sandwiches. Rogelach is a filled pasty product originating in the Jewish communities of Poland. It is very popular in Israel, common, commonly found in most cafes and bakeries. Uh, it is also a popular treat among the Jews in the diaspora. Traditional rogelach are made in the form of a crescent by rolling a triangle of dough around a filling. Some sources state that the rugelach and the French croissant share a common Viennese ancestor, crescent-shaped pastries. The name is Yiddish, the historical language of the Ashkenazi Jews. The Ach, which English plates pearl, while the L can be diminutive as, for example, shtetl, villages, is a pearl plural of shtetl. The, the, the diminutive of shtot, town, and the diminutive of shtot, town. In this case, the root means something like twist, so the translation would be little twist, a reference to the shape of this cookie. In this context, note that rog, which means corner in Yiddish. In Polish, which influenced Yiddish, rog can mean corner, but can also mean horn, both uh, the kind of an animal and the musical instrument. Croissant-shaped pastries, which looks like horns, are called rogala in Polish. Um, See, rogelach is almost identical in pronunciation and meaning to the Yiddish word rogelach. Alternatively, uh, some assert that the, the root rugel, meaning royal, possibly reference to the taste. This explanation is in conflict with the, with the Yiddish usage where the word kenglich is the dominant word meaning royal. Finally, in modern Hebrew, they they're known as roglit, a post-biblical Hebrew word meaning trailing vines, though the name rogelach is still commonly used by Hebrew speakers. The Yiddish word rogelach probably came first. The modern Hebrew is probably a negalism chosen for its similarity to the Yiddish and its descriptive meaning. Latkes are a type of potato pancake of Ashkenazi Jewish origin that are traditionally prepared to celebrate Hanukkah. Uh, they, can be served, they, can, they can be served with sour cream or applesauce. The word latke is de derived via Yiddish from Eastern Slavic word latka o latka, a diminutive o, o ladaya, Small pancake. The word Laviva, Hebrew, the Hebrew name for Latka, refers to the book of Samuel to a dumpling made from kneaded dough as part of the story of Amnon and Tamar. The first Latkas were probably made of cheese, probably either ricotta or sear, fried in poppy seed oil butter, served with fruit preserves, and these cheese Latkas were the most common uh, kind of Latka 
uh, in Ashkenazi communities until the 19th century when the potato arrived in Eastern Europe. However, at the time, the cheapest and most readily available cooking fat was smalt, rendered poultry fat, usually from a goose or chicken, and due to Jewish dietary laws, which described the mixture of mixing meat and dairy products alternative to the cheese latka arrived. This included buckwheat or rye flour or other tubers endemic to the region, such as turnips. However, once the potato became popularized in Eastern Europe, it is quickly included as a latka ingredient and became so popular that today, the word latka is almost synonymous with potatoes. Latkas are today are traditionally, traditionally made with potato, although other vegetables are also sometimes used, albeit less frequently. Potato remains the most popular variety of latka. There are two main varieties of potato latkas, those made with grated potato and those made with pureed or mashed potato. These textures of two varieties are the textures of these two varieties are very different. Latkas made of grated potatoes um, are the most traditional version and are still very popular. They are prepared by grating potatoes and onions with a box grater or food processor, and, excess mo and the excess moisture is squeezed out. Eggs and flour or matzo meal are then mixed with the potatoes, and the latkes are fried in batches and batches in an oiled pan. The thickness depends on personal preference. This version of latka is made with pure pureed potatoes. As with the aforementioned grated potato version, potatoes and onions are grated and are and, and are added to egg and matzo meal. But in this version, ingredients are then processed in a food processor. Um, until a pureed consistency is attained. This form of alaka is easier to shape, and according to the Jewish chef Jamie Geller, they have a pudding-like consistency. Lakas need, need not necessarily be made from potatoes. Prior to the induction of, of the potato of, to the, of the old world, uh, latkes, uh were, uh, and in some places are, still made uh, uh, from a variety of other vegetables, cheeses, legumes, or starches, depending on the available local ingredients and food of the various places where Jews lived. Numerous modern uh, recipes uh, call for the addition of greens such as onions and carrots. Daily variations on a simple, on simple, simple potato latkes might include zucchini, sweet onion, and gruyere for French onion flavor. And some variations made with sweet and some variations are made with sweet potatoes. Latkes are prepared in the current form. Latkes have prepared have been prepared in the current form since at least the 1800s, based on an older variety of latkes that goes back at least to the Middle Ages and have have been aforementioned in books and movies. Borscht is a soup that is commonly made from beets and or cabbage, made by cooking together cabbage meats, bones, onions, raisins, sour salt, citric acid, sugar, and sometimes tomatoes. Beet borscht is served hot or cold. In the cold version, a bean and egg yolk may be added before serving, and each bowl topped with a dollop of sour cream. The last process is called for Wesson, to make white. <laughs> Bagels originated in Poland and is commonly eaten in countries with significant Ashkenazi Jewish populations. Bagels are eaten with smoked salmon or whitefish on top of cream cheese. Bagels were made famous in the United States of America by Jewish delicatessens. Bagels can also be eaten with fish spreads made from chopped herring, whitefish, and salmon, among many other types of bread such as rye bread, crackers, and even, and even matzah. Fish spreads are uh, spreads of fish most commonly made from herring, whitefish, or salmon. Also, uh... Uh, um, uh, fish featured in spreads are tuna and uh, egg salad. Chicken soup is made from the chicken that is turned made from chicken that is chick, that is turned into chicken broth. The soup is prepared with herbs like parsley and fresh dill or thyme, and was often served with kanedlach, matzo balls, kreplach, dumpling, and lakshin, flat egg noodles, or mandolin, shirei marak in Israel. Soup amas, which is like a like crunchy crouton thing. 
Uh, a traditional garnish was erkle, little eggs. These unlaid chicken eggs were taken from a hen and boiled in the soup. Modern health standards make these difficult to obtain now. At weddings, golden chicken soup was often served. The reason for its name was probably the yellow circles of molten chicken fat floating on its surface. Today, chicken soup was widely referred to not just among Jews in jest as Jewish penicillin inhaled as a cure for the common cold. Kreplach are small, small dumplings filled with ground meat, mashed potatoes, or another filling, usually boiled and served in chicken soup, though they also might be served fried. They are similar to Polish uska, Russian pliemeni, Italian ravioli or tortellini, tortellini German maltaschen, and Chinese yaozi and wonton. The dough is traditionally made of flour, water, eggs, netted and rolled out thin. Some modern-day cooks use frozen dough sheets or wonton wrappers. Ready-made kraplach are also sold in the kosher freezer section of supermarkets. In Ashkenazi Jewish home, Kreblach are traditionally served in Rosh Hashanah and at the pre-fast meal before Yom Kippur and on Hashanah Rabbah and Simchat Torah. Kreblach with vegetarian or dairy fillings are also eaten in Purim because the hidden nature of the Kreblach interior mimics the hidden nature of the Purim miracle. In many communities, meat-filled Kreblach are served on Purim. A variety with uh, sweet cheese filling is served as a star dish in many as a starter or main dish in dairy meals, specifically on Shavuot. Fried kreplach are also a popular dish on Hanukkah because they are fried in oil, which re re references the oil miracle of Hanukkah. The Yiddish word for kreplach is plural of kreple, a diminutive of krap, which comes from the Yiddish ancestor language Middle High German, where krap, krapfe, meaning piece of pastry, meaning meant piece of pastry. From the same source comes the German krapfen, Defy pastry and its eastern, east central German dialect variant, Krapel. By folk etymology, the name is sometimes explained as standing for three festivals K for Kippur, R for Rabbah, and P for Purim, which together form the word crepe. Some cooks use a square of, a, of dough that is filled with two fold and that is filled and folded into, two, into triangles. Other uses of round dough resulting in a crescent shape or two squares of dough. Krupnik is a thick Polish soup made from vegetables or meat broth, containing potatoes and barley groats, uh, are correctly called kripli, hence the name. Common additional ingredients include uh, washkinskia, carrots, parsley, leek, and celery, onion, meat, and dried mushrooms. Babka, babka is a sweet breaded cake of Ashkenazi Jewish origin popular in the United States and Israel, among other countries with a significant Jewish population. Babka associated with Eastern, is associated with the Eastern European Jewish tradition. Uh, traditionally, babka is made from doubled and twisted length of yeast dough and is typically baked in a high-low pan. Instead of a fruit filling, the dough contains cinnamon and or chocolate. The babka is usually topped with streusel or poppy seeds. Immigrant, immigrants brought this dish, also known as crab cake, to New York where, pop, where it's popularly flourished. There are different styles of babka, most noticeably American and Israeli. American-style babka is traditionally made with dough similar to challah dough and is often topped with strusel, poppy seeds, or a crumb topping. Israeli-style babka is made with a laminated dough, enriched with butter, which is then folded and rolled in multiple times to create many distinct layers, similar to, similar to that what is used for Israeli-style rugula, and also croissant dough. Israeli-style babka is available in, with a wider array of fillings and shapes. It is often, most often shaped into a low pan, but is also sometimes made into individual babkas. A pie-shaped babka 
formed into a shape ring, or braided and, break and baked reform. Koshkosh. A, sim a similar cake called a koshkosh is al also popular in Jewish bakeries, so, you know, similar to babka. Koshkosh is also, also comes in chocolate and cinnamon varieties, but is lower and longer than babka and not twisted, and not topped with strusel. Cakes of these styles are typically, but not universally, considered karuns baked in low pans, rather than babkas. Koshkosh has become popular in North American cities with large Jewish populations, including Montreal, New York, Chicago, Miami, and Toronto. I have never had a koshkosh before, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to try one. Uh, a strudel is a, a type of layer pastry with a filling that is usually sweet. It became popular in the 18th century throughout Habsburg, the Habsburg Empire. Strudel is a part of Austrian cuisine, but also common in other Central European cuisines. Strudel is an English loan word from German. Uh, the word derives from the German word strudel, which in Middle High German literally means whirlpool or eddy. Uh, a turnover is a type of pastry made by placing a filling on a piece of dough, folding the dough over, sealing it, and baking it. Turnovers can be sweet or savory and are often made as a sort of portable meal or dessert, similar to a sandwich. They are often eaten for breakfast. It is most common for sweet turnovers to have a fruit filling and to be made with a puff pastry or short crust pastry dough. Savory turnovers generally consider, contain meat and or vegetables and can be made with any sort of dough. They are needed, though, though a kneaded yeast dough seems to be most common in western cuisines. They are usually baked but may be fried. Savory turnovers are often sold as convenience food in supermarkets. Savory turnovers with meat or poultry and identified as turnovers in the United States, for example, beef turnover or cheesy chicken turnover, a uh, cheesy chicken turnover uh, is not kosher, uh, have to meet a standard of identity or composition and should retain a certain amount of meat or poultry. Meat and cheese are not mixed in Jewish style turnovers because it is not kosher, as I said literally just two seconds ago. Uh, common turnover fillings include fruits such as apples, blueberries, and cherries. Meats like chicken, beef, and pork, pork is not used because it's not kosher, vegetables such as sweet potatoes and savory ingredients like cheese. Specialty versions are also found, such as wild rabbit and leek. Uh, rabbits are also not kosher, but leek can be used. Pierogies may be stuffed singularly in combination with mashed potatoes, fried onions, quark or farm farmer's cheese, cabbage, sauerkraut, meat, mushrooms, spinach, cheese, or other ingredients depending on the cook. Ingredients depending on the cook's preferences. The reserved versions of the dumpling. Uh, can be stuffed with sweetened quark or fresh fruit fillings such as cherry, uh, strawberry, raspberry, blueberry, apple, or plum. Stone, pure, st stone prunes are sometimes used, as well as jam. For more flavor, sour cream can be added to the dough mixture, and this ten tends to lighten the dough. Pierogi are, um, are filled dumplings of Central and Eastern European origin. Made by wrapping uh, unleavened dough around a savory sweet filling and, cook and cooking in boiling water or pan frying. Pierogies, which consist of noodle dough, have to be cooked in boiling water uh, or uh, are associated with the Central and European, Euro European kitchens where they are considered national dishes, especially in Poland. Pierogi-like dumplings are popular in most Central and Eastern European countries, as well as Ashkenazi, Jewish, and modern-day American cuisines where they are known for their local under their local names. Typical fillings include potato, sauerkraut, ground meat, cheese, and fruit. This dumpling may be served with a topping, such as melted butter, sour cream, or fried onion, or a combination of those ingredients. They are also sometimes called vreniki, which comes from the Ukrainian word vreniki, and the plural form of vrenik, which derives from the Ukrainian var, boiling liquid, indicating boiling as a primary cooking method for this kind of dumpling. The English word pierogi, uh, 
plural pierogi, pierogies or pierogies comes from the plural comes from the Polish pierogi, which is a plural uh, form of pierog, a generic term for filled dumplings. It derives from the old from Old Slavic piru and further from Proto-Slavic feast. While dumplings are found throughout Eurasia, the specific name pierogi with its Proto-Slavic roots and its cognates and its cognates in the West and Eastern Slavic languages, including Russian pierog pie and pierogi baked pastries show the name's common Slavic origins, annotating the modern nation-states and their standardized languages. It is most, in most of the languages, the word means pie. For many, um, are dumplings of Russian and Kazakh cuisine that consist of wrapping of a, consist of a filling wrapped in thin unleavened dough. The dough is made from flour and water, sometimes adding a small portion of eggs. The filling can be mincemeat, pork, not for Jews, lamb, beef, fish, or any other kinds of wheat. Venison being particularly traditional for colder regions, or mushrooms. The mixing together uh, of different kinds of meats is also popular. Schmaltz is rendered also uh, is rendered clarified chicken or goose fat, used for frying or as a spread on bread in Central European cuisine. And in the United States, particularly identified with Ashkenazi Jewish culture, the English term schmaltz is derived from Yiddish and is cognate with the, the term schmaltz, meaning rendered animal fat. Regardless of a source, both tallow and lard are considered forms of smalt in German, as in clarified butter. English usually tends to follow Yiddish, where it means paltry fat. Uh, the term smalt entered English language usage uh, through Yiddish-speaking Ashkenazi Jews, who use it to re refer to culture paltry, culture, kosher paltry fat. The word smalt is the Yiddish word for rendered chicken fat. The word is common to the high, to high German languages, including both Yiddish and modern standard German, which comes from Middle High German schmaltz, a noun derived from the verb schmelten, meaning to melt. The verb can, the verb can be traced back to the Germanic root schmelten, which survived, which survives the modern English verb to smelt. Uh, schmaltz rendered from uh, chicken or goose was used by northwestern and eastern European Jews who were forbidden by kashrut, Jewish dietary laws, from finding their meats in butter or lard, the common form of cooking fat in northern Europe, as butter, being derived from milk. As butter, being derived from milk, cannot be used with meat under Jewish prohibition on mixing meat and dairy, and lard is derived from pork, a non-kosher meat. Furthermore, tallow derived from beef or, beef or mutton would have been uneconomical, particularly given that virtually also the raw material for tallow is chalev and, cons and consumption is forbidden. Northwestern and Eastern European Jews could not, also not could obtain the vegetable-derived cooking oils such as olive oils and sesame oils used in the Middle East and around, the, and around the Mediterranean, as in Spain and Italy. Thus, Ashkenazi Jews turned to poultry fat for cooking, as a cooking fat of choice. The overfeeding of geese to produce more fat uh, per bird produced Europe's modern foie gras as a side effect. Um, the manufacture of smalts involves cutting the fatty tissues of a bird, chicken, or goose into small pieces, melting the fat, and collecting the drippings. Smalts may be prepared by a dry process where the pieces are cooked under low heat and stirred, gradually yielding their fat. A wet process also exists whereby the fat is melted in, in, by direct steam injection. The rendered smalts is then filtered and clarified. Homemade Jewish-style smalts is made by cutting chicken or goose fat into small pieces and melting into a pan over low to moderate heat, generally with onion. After the majority of the fat has been extracted, the melted fat is drained through a cheesecloth into a storage container. Another simple method is as by a pot, uh, as by a, is a 
Another simple method is as by a, as a is bleh. another simple method is as a byproduct of making chicken soup. After the chicken soup is simmered in the pot or crock pot, the broth is chilled so the fat rises to the top and it can be skimmed off at once, providing the schmaltz to set aside for other uses and a lower fat soup, which is brought back to heat to heat before serving. Schmaltz also often has a strong aroma. And, thereby, and therefore is often used for hearty recipes such as stews or roasts, and is also used as a bread spread, where it is sometimes also salted, and generally this can be done on whole grain breads or black breads which have a strong flavor of their own. It can be used as salad such as egg salad and chicken salad and as, a main, and as main is used as a fatty addition to such recipes like as potato pancakes or kugel, or instead of butter when pan frying potatoes, onions, or other food. Various vegetarian and consequently par versions of schmaltz have been marketed, starting with Nyafat, uh, which was created by U.S. Rochach and Sons in 1924, which is which is largely coconut oil with some onion flavor and flavoring and color. Vegetable shortening is also used as a substitute. Garbins beans or gravin are crisp um, chicken or goose skin cracklings with fried onion. As with other cracklings, garbins are a byproduct of rending animal fat to produce cooking fat. In this case, kosher schmaltz. Uh, favored food in the past among Ashkenazi Jews, garbins is frequently mentioned in Jewish stores and parables. This food is often associated with the Jewish holiday Hanukkah and Rosh Hashanah. Traditionally, garbins were served um, with potato gugu or laka during Hanukkah. Garbins are often asso are associated are also associated with garbins are also associated with Passover as large amounts of schmaltz. With the resulting garbins were traditionally used in Passover recipes. Garbins can be eaten as a snack, typically on rye or pumpernickel bread, with salt, or used in recipes such as chopped liver or or all the above, or all of the above. It often serves as a side dish with pastrami on rye or hot dogs. This food has also been eaten as a midnight snack or as an appetizer. Some Jews in Louisiana add garbins to jambalaya, in, in place of treif shrimp, not kosher. Treif means not kosher. It was served as if sold to children on a challah bread as a treat. It also sometimes served in gilti, a modified version of bilti that replaces bacon with gray beans. Oh yeah, uh, if you're a Jew from Louisiana, uh, you know, send me a picture of uh, put you putting your gray beans uh, in jambalaya in place of shrimp. That would be really cool. I'd like to see a video of that or um, like send it to my Instagram once again, send it to my email. Yeah, that would be really cool if you're from Louisiana and you do that or from anywhere else that does that. Uh, yeah, please send me a video, picture, media, and uh, yeah, it would be really cool. Schmaltz herring, Yiddish, which schmaltz herring, which is you know fish in Yiddish, is herring caught often just before spawning, when the fat schmaltz in the fish is at a maximum. Colloquially, schmaltz herring refers to the fish pickled in brine. Uh, schmaltz herring means fatty herring and refers to the stage of development in the life cycle of the herring when the fish can eat the most fat. Popular, popular in Ashkenaz uh, Jewish cookery is it does not contain any actual schmaltz. Holishkis also hopchis. Hutzpitz or Gefelte Kreut is a traditional Jewish cabbage roll dish. Halishkas are pair, prepared from lightly boiled blanched cabbage leaves wrapped in a parcel-like manner around mincemeat and then simmered in a tomato sauce. Sometimes rice is added to the meat filling. While the dish is eaten all year round, it is sometimes served on Sukkot to symbolize a bountiful harvest and on Simchat Torah because two stuffed cabbages rolls placed beside resemble Torah scrolls. Teglach are small knotted pastries boiled in a honeyed syrup. They are a traditional Ashkenazi Jew, Ashkenazi Jewish treat for Rosh Hashanah, Sukkot, Simchat Torah, and Purim. It is popular in Rosh Hashanah when it is traditional to eat sweet foods made with honey to usher in a sweet new year. Flodni 
is a layered sweet pastry uh, consisting of apples, walnut, currants, and poppy seed. And uh, were a staple of and they were a staple of Hungarian Jewish bakeries prior to World War II. Uh, compote or compote, French for mixture, is the dessert originating from medieval Europe, made of whole or pieces uh, of fruit and sugar syrup. Uh, compote or compote or compote is a dessert originating from medieval Europe, made of whole or pieces of fruit and sugar syrup. Whole fruits are cooked in water with sugar and spices. The syrup may be seasoned with vanilla, lemon, or orange peel, cinnamon sticks, or powder, cloves, other spices, ground almonds, grated coconut, candy fruit, or raisins. The compote is served either warm or cold. Because it's easy to prepare, made from inexpensive ingredients, and contain no dairy products, compote uh, became a staple of Jewish households throughout Europe. I personally eat in this. It's okay. Like it's just like a imagine a soup, but like it's sweet AF and. Uh, it has uh, like a fruit instead of like a, like a chicken soup. Coleslaw is cabbage that is flavored with vinegar and other sauces. I've seen it where it's made from purple cabbage, cabbage. I've seen where it's made from purple cabbage, cabbage, carrots, carrots combined together. Cholent uh, or chamin is a traditional juice stew. It's usually, it's usually simmered overnight for 12 hours or more and eaten for lunch on, the, on Shabbat. Sabbath. Cholent was developed over the centuries to conform with Jewish laws that prohibit cooking on the uh, Sabbath. The pot is brought to a boil on Friday before the Sabbath begins and is kept on a blech or hot plate or left in a slow oven or, or electric slow cooker until the following day. There are many variations of the dish, which is standard in both Ashkenazi and Sephardic kitchens. Uh, the most basic ingredients of cholent are meat, potatoes, beans, and barley. Ashkenaz cholent often contains kishka, a sausage casing, or hazel. A chicken neck skin stuffed with a flour-based mixture. Slow overnight cooking allows the flavors of the various ingredients to permeate and produces the characteristic taste of cholent. Hazel is an Ashkenazi Jewish dish. is a sort of sausage made from chicken neck skin stuffed with flour, smalts, internal meats, chopped heart, gizzard, liver, and fried onions and sewn up with a thread. Sometimes the stuffing is flavored with garlic and black pepper. Hazel may be cooked in chicken soup or used as an ingredient in cholent. Because of its sausage shape and flour-based stuffing, Hazel's is sometimes called false kishka. Peticha or garoleta, also known as cat's foot jelly, is a traditional Ashkenazi dish. It is a type of asbig prepared from calf's feet. Kept from calf's feet. The name appears to derive from the Turkish word paka korvasi or leg soup. In Eastern Europe, Jews serve peticha with chopped eggs on Sabbath. Noodles, also called lokshen, are made from a dough of flour and eggs, rolled into sheets, and then cut into long strips. If the dough uh, is cut into small squares, it becomes farfil. Both lakshan and farfil are usually boiled and served with soup. Farfil, uh, from Middle High German varvelin, is a small pellet or flake-shaped pasta used in Ashkenazi Jewish cuisine. It is made from an egg noodle dough and is frequently toasted before being cooked. It can be served in soup as a, and, or as a side dish. In the United States, it can also be found prepackaged as egg barley. During the Jewish holiday of Passover, when dietary laws pertaining to grains are observed, matzo farfel takes place of the egg noodle version. Matzo farfel is simply matzo broken into small pieces. The Baal Shem Tov, founder of the Hasidic movement, ate farfel every Friday night because the word was similar to the word farfel, which means wiped out over and finished. He considered uh, noodles symbolic of the end of the old week. Uh, Lekach is a honey-sweetened cake made by Jews, especially for the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah. Known in Hebrew as Ugat Devash, literally, honey cake, the word Lekach is Yiddish. 
perhaps from the Aramaic lekach, meaning to mix thoroughly. Lekach is one of the symbolically significant foods. Lekach is one of the symbolically significant foods traditionally eaten by Ashkenazi Jews at Rosh Hashanah in hopes of enduring a sweet new year. Recipes vary widely. Lekach is usually a dense loaf-shaped cake, but in some versions are similar to sponge or pound cake, with the addition of honey and spices, sometimes used with tea or coffee for coloring. Other versions are more like gingerbread, pain de pain de epée, or like buchen. The traditional, the Jewish traditional honey cake may date back to babusa, an ancient tradition cake. Variations, uh, which are still enjoyed throughout the Middle East, seems seems and other variants, and other spelling variants of seems is a traditional Ashkenazi sweet stew, typically made from carrots and dried fruits such as prunes, raisins, and often combined with other root vegetables, including yams. Some cooks add chunks of meat, usually beef flank or brisket. The dish is cooked slowly over low heat and flavored with honey or sugar and sometimes cinnamon and or other spices. Bialy is a Yiddish word short for Bialy or Bialy Stoiker Kuchen from the city of Bialystok in Poland. It is a small roll that is a traditional dish in the Polish Ashkenazi Jewish cuisine. A, a traditional Bialy or Sublars as known in Poland has a diameter of up to 15 centimeters and is a chewy used roll similar to a bagel. Unlike a Unlike a bagel, which is boiled before baking, a bialy is simply baked, and instead of a hole in the middle, it has a depression. Before baking, this depression is filled with diced onions and other ingredients, including, depending on the recipe, garlic poppy seeds or breadcrumbs. Blintz is a popular traditional Jewish cigar-shaped filled pancake, similar to the crepe of Ashkenazi Jewish origin, uh, that is commonly filled with farmer's cheese or fruit, and is traditionally served for Shavuot, and less commonly for Hanukkah and other Jewish holidays. The, the word blinz comes from, in English comes from the Yiddish word blinz, coming from the Slavic word for pancake. Corned beef is a salt-cured beef, beef or brisket. This term comes from the treatment of meat with large-grain rock salt, also called corns of salt. Sometimes, sugar and spices are also added to corned beef recipes. Corned beef is featured as an ingredient in many cuisines. Uh, Mandelbrot with a number of variant spellings and called Mandelbrot or Karnish in English-speaking countries and Karnishbrot in Ukraine is a Jewish cookie. Hamishbrot in Ukraine is a Jewish cookie popular among Eastern European Jews. The Yiddish word Mandelbrot literally means almond bread, a reference to its common ingredient of almonds. It's typically formed by baking a loaf, which is then cut into small slabs and twice baked into a in order to form a crunchy exterior. The cookies were popular in Eastern Europe among rabbis, merchants, and other Antirnian Jews as a staple dessert that kept well. Its precise origins is unknown as a historic relationship with biscotti, a similar, still a similar Italian cookie. While Mandelbrot and biscotti both have a crunchy exterior, Mandelbrot is slightly softer than biscotti due to its high, higher, higher oil and butter content. Additional ingredients vary between bakers, but common additions include almonds, walnuts, cinnamons, chocolate chips, or, can or diced candied fruit. Mandelbrot is called Kamishbrot in Ukraine, and the two terms are often used interchangeably in the United States. Beef brisket is also a dish commonly eaten in some Ashkenazi Jewish households, from what I noticed. However, it depends on what is available and what the customs of the family are. Although I didn't find this online, but uh, you know I am a par partial Mar Moldovan Jewish descent, and in Moldova, eggplants are a common food. So there's the dish called the givetch, where it's like eggplants mixed with like a tomato sauce and onions and spices. Uh, it's basically the uh, Sephardic equivalent. I mean, it's basically the Ashkenazi equivalent of the, you know, the Sephardic, uh, if you know this uh, Sephardic eggplant and tomato sauce. And also, there's this cabbage dish called kapusta, 
where it's cooked with cabbage mixed with, uh, which is like a cabbage, like piece of cabbage, like cooked mixed with spices. I haven't eaten uh, kapusta and givetch uh, in a while, so uh, I don't know what it looks like. I don't really know. Like, I haven't eaten those two dishes in a while, but uh, I can describe both of them to my best ability. So givetch is like a, it's like red, it's in like a tomato, uh, like eggplants and like onions and stuff in like a tomato like based, uh, like a, uh, like sauce and then givetch is kind of like a bunch of chopped cabbages mixed with like spices and like cooked together and uh yeah those are the uh two like those are the best descriptions of the dishes that i personally eat sometimes and uh yeah and with that i basically covered every ashkenaz jewish food and probably did not leave anything out now what we discuss is the kasar theory hypothesis or myth Disproving the Kassar hypothesis and the fact that all Ashkenazi Jews are 30th cousins. There's a popular theory that Ashkenazi Jews are descended from the Khazars, which were a semi-nomadic group of uh, multi-ethnic conglomerate of Turkic peoples who formed a semi-nomadic Khanate in the area extending from Central Europe, uh, uh, Eastern Europe to Central Asia. It is also, uh, it is also stated in a popular anti-Semitic tool saying that Ashkenazi Jews are not seen as ethnically Middle Eastern, but are seen as ethnically, ethnically European because Ashkenazi Jews are descended from the Khazars who lived in Eastern and Central Europe about 1,500 years ago. But these claims are false and Ashkenazi Jews are in fact ethnically Middle Eastern and in this section it will, it will be explained why Ashkenazi Jews are ethnically Middle Eastern. But first a little bit about the Khazar theory uh, hypothesis or hypothesis with a bit of history about it. From now on, I'm going to be calling it the Kassar uh, hypothesis. The Kassar hypothesis, hypothesis of Ashkenazi ancestry, often called the Kassar myth by its critics, is the hypothesis that Ashkenazi Jews are in large part descended from the Khazars, a multi-ethnic kilometer of the Turkic peoples who formed a semi-nomadic cabinet in, in the area extending from Eastern Europe to Central Asia. This hypothesis draws on some medieval sources, just as the, such as the Khazar correspondence, according to which at some point in the 8th to 9th century, the ruling elite of the Khazar, Khazars was said by Judah Halevi to Abraham ibn Dawud to have converted to rabbinic Judaism. The scope of the conversion with the, within the Khazar Khanate remains uncertain. The evidence used to tie Ashkenazi communities to Khazar is meager and is subject to conflicting interpretations. Genetic studies have found no substantive evidence substantive evidence of a Khazar origin among Ashkenazi Jews, but I found evidence that they have near eastern slash Mediterranean and southern eastern origins, southern European origins. The hypothesis has complex history within academia. While most contemporary scholars dismiss it, the hypothesis has been argued in the past and still finds occasional defend defenders of its plausibility. In the late 19th century, Ernest Renan and other scholars speculated that Ashkenazi Jews of European of Europe originated among Turkic refugees who had migrated from the collapsed Khazarian Khanate westward into Europe, and exchanged their name, native Khazar language for Yiddish while continuing to practice Judaism. Though intermittently evoked by several scholars at, since that time, the Khazar Ashkenaz hypothesis came to the attention of a much wider public with the publication of authors Arthur Kotzler, The Thirteenth Tribe, in 1976. It has been revived by Aaron L. Hake, who in 2012 conducted a study um, aiming to vindicate it. Despite his skepticism, he and his collaborators elated the concept in 2016 by developing a novel of genetic analysis by trusting its results with the fringe logistic theories of linguist Paul Wexler. As stated before, 
The hypothesis has been used at times by anti-Zionists to challenge the idea that Jews have genetic ties to ancient Israel, and it has also played some role in anti-Semitic theories, which in, opinion, which in my opinion is completely BS, And as Jews are indigenous to the land of Israel even after 2,000 years of exile. Some sources attribute to, to the Ukrainian, Ukrainian rabbi Isaac Baer Levinson the, the first reference to a connection between Ashkenazi Jews and the Khazars. Levinson also quoted that the tradition of their forefathers was that Ashkenazi Jews had earlier spoken Russian before acquiring Yiddish. The hypothesis was advanced in 1808 by Johann Evers in context of an early controversy over the foundations of the Russian state, which pitted scholars opposing a Norman origin for the Vangrians against those who argued that these founders of the Kievan Rus were Slavic indigenous. Ewars proposed that the idea that the Viking bargaining founders were in fact Khazars. The Russian historian Nikolai Karmazin advanced the claim, asserting that considerable numbers of the Khazars had left Khazaria for Kievan Rus in times of Vladimir, which is 980-1015. The German Orientalist Karl Neumann suggested as early as 1847 that the migration of the Khazars might have contributed to the formation of the core population of, Eastern Europe, of the Jews of Eastern Europe. Without, however, specifying whether he was referring to Judaizing Turks or ethnic residents, Jewish residents, Jewish re or ethnic Jewish residents of Khazaria. When at the Versailles Peace Conference, a Jewish Zionist called Palestine the land of the Jewish people's ancestors, Joseph Reinach, a French Jewish member of Parliament who, who was opposed to Zionism, that I missed the idea, arguing Jews are descendants from the Israelites, Israelites were a tiny, tiny minority. In his view, a conversion has played a major role in the expansion of the Jewish people, and in addition, he claimed the majority of Russian, Polish, and Galician Jews descended from the Khazars are Tartar people. From, well, he claimed a majority of Russian, Polish, and Galician Jews descended from the Khazars are Tartar people from the south of Russia who converted to Judaism in, in, in mass at the times of Charlemagne. In 1934, Corrado Gini, a Distinguished statistician, interested, interested in also, also in demography and anthropology, with close ties to the fascist elite, led an expedition in October, August to October 1934 to survey the Karaites. It included that the Karaites, uh, which is like a kind of like a Jewish script I'll be which is a Jewish script I'll be covering in a later episode, were ethnically mixed, predominantly Chuvash, which he took, which he mistook to be Finno or Ugric descents of the Taro Carmirians, who at one point had been absorbed into the Khazars, who, who for Jinni, however, were not Turkic. A further conclusion was that the Ashkenazi arose from the Turco Tatar converts to Judaism. Though the Khazar Karite theory has unsubstantiated, has, is unsubstantiated by any historical evidence. The early Karite literature speaks of Khazars as Mamrism, bastards or strangers within Judaism. This myth serves as a political purpose of taking that community out of the strang stranglehold of anti-Semitic regulations and prejudice directed against directly against the Jews in Eastern Europe. Uh, in Nazi Europe, unlike most race theories in, in Germany down to its time, Hans F. K. Gunther argued that Jews were not a pure race, although he nevertheless considered them to be highly inbred. He argued that Ashkenazi Jews were a mix of near oil Eastern, Oriental, East Baltic, Eastern, Inner Asian, Nordic, Hamite, and Negro peoples and separate from the Sephardim. Grunfeldt believed that the conversion of the Khazars, whom he have taken to be, took, took to be a Near Eastern race, constituted a further external element in the racial makeup of the Ashkenazi Jews, strengthening its Near Eastern component. Grunfeldt's theorizing about racial consequences flowing 
consequences flowing from the conversion of the Tsars was embraced by Gerhard Kittel. The Karai claim not to be ethnic Jews but descendants of Khazars was eventually accepted by the Nazis who exempted him. Unlike the Crimean Kramchaks, who they had historic ties from the policy of the general style extermination on these grounds. The, the Karaites and Crimean Krimchaks will be covered in a later episode in because they, you know, they, they are considered Jewish uh, in, a, in, some, in a way. In debates leading up to the UN plan in 1947 to partition Palestine into Jewish and Arab states, the British politicians John Hope Simpson and Edward Spears intend on denying Zionism that part of its claim that drew on biblical argument. In debates leading up to the UN plan in 1947 to partition Palestine into Jewish and Arab states, the British politicians John Hope Simpson and Edward Spears intent on denying Zionism the part of its claim that drew on biblical arguments asserted that Jewish immigrants to mandatory Palestine were the descendants of pagan converts and not the Israelites. The approach was one shared by both Gentile and Jewish anti-Zionists. Rory Miller claims that their denial of a lineal descent from Israelites drew on the Khazar theory. After establishments of the State of Israel in 1948, the Khazar hypothesis, uh, in my opinion, became a leverage factor in anti-Semitic arguments to, to prove that Ashkenazi to disprove the Ashkenazi Jews are not indigenous to the land of Israel. Many books have been written by people who criticize the Khazar hypothesis and adamantly state that Ashkenazi Jews are descendants of Khazars, which is completely not true and will explain shortly. It may have started out as a possible theory that might have possibly have some minor evidence, but it's now this hypothesis is taken way out of hand and is primarily used as fuel for anti-Semitic attacks against Jews to get them out of Israel. While the consensus uh, in genetic research is that the world's Jewish population, including the Ashkenazim, share substantial genetic ancestry derived from a common ancient Middle Eastern founder population, and that Ashkenazi Jews have no genetic ancestry attributable to, attrib to the Khazars. Counter evidence exists to the Khazar hypothesis claiming that the male lineages of Ashkenazi Jews originate from the ancient 2000 BCE to 7000 BCE population of the Middle East who spread to Europe. DNA studies of Ashkenazi Jews conclude that their male lineages were found by ancestors from the Middle East and that they share this paternal ancestry with Spartac Jewish populations. Genetic studies show that male lineages of Ashkenazi Jews bear a common genetic heritage which originates in the Near East and that they bear the strongest resemblance to the people of the Fertile Crescent. Uh, you know, now to disprove the Khazar theory. Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry is under the umbrella of um, European ancestry, but it's clear from numerous studies that people of an and Ashkenazi ancestry, ancestry are distinct from the European population at large. Most people of an Ashkenazi ancestry trace their DNA to Eastern and, and Central Europe, but many also have Middle Eastern ancestry, which is um, just one reason for their uniqueness. In corpus of given names used by Jews of Eastern Europe during the last centuries, we find some the, the same linguistic layers as in the lexicon of Yiddish. There are numerous Germanic and Hebrew names, and some are Maic names. There are also Greek names, Todros from Theodorus, Clement from Kalinomos, Old French names, Biel, Bunim, Yentl, Old Czech names, Khan, Slave, Zay, Late, and Polish names, Basse, Seal, and very few East Slavic, i.e. Belarusian, Rukain, or Russian names, Vlad, Badan, Vichy. There are no Turkic names, which in what is what the Khazars are, a Turkic group that lived in Central and Eastern Europe 1,000 to 1,500 years ago. 
In a study that I found on 23andMe.com, link will be in the description, it shows that Ashkenazi Jews are distinct from other Caucasian groups and genetics are more related to other Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews. Kind of not related to Kassar hypothesis, but some evidence from an article written by Danny Ishai Bahan on why Ashkenazi Jews are ethnically but uh, kind of not related to the Kassar hypothesis, but here's some evidence from an article written by Danny Ishai Bahan on why Ashkenazi Jews are not are why Ashkenazi kind of not related to Kassar hypothesis, but some evidence from an article written by Danny Ishai Bahan on why Ashkenazi Jews are ethnically Middle Eastern and not European. An indigenous people of the Middle East, Ashkenazi Jews were driven out of their homeland by European and later Arab colonists taken as slaves to Europe, where they were consistently regarded as savages and uh, periodically uh, massacred and excluded from society on the grounds that they were foreign, non-Christian, non-European, or in the words of our European oppressors, Asiatic or Oriental, present on European soil. The acknowledgement that Ashkenazim are non-European and non-white, which really dates all the way back to the pre-Christian era, continued to pervade Western society into Enlightenment era and beyond. The fact that Jews writ are not racially European, i.e. white, but rather an indigenous Middle Eastern and Oriental people who are cousins of Arabs was a common knowledge into the 1960s. Granted, some Ashkenazim, as well as some non-Ashkenazim, do have a, a, some ambiguous or ostensibly white facial, white facial features, which are mainly the result of Cossack rapes during pogroms, and therefore cannot camouflage themselves, but a very large number cannot. For example, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew that has more white facial features, but if you compare me to an actual white person, my facial features will reflect more Middle Eastern DNA ones than theirs, and my DNA will be more related to Middle Eastern DNA than European DNA. DNA. However, I myself am not a good example of Ashkenazi Jew looking Middle Eastern as I look very white, but Ashkenazi Jews that I talk to in my community look very Middle Eastern and prove the fact that Ashkenazi Jews are Middle, East, are Middle Eastern. In the description of this episode, there will be a link to the photo gallery of Ashkenazi Jews that look very Middle Eastern, in my, in my opinion, to me. In the description of this episode, there will be a link to a photo gallery of Ashkenazi Jews that look very Middle Eastern to me, in my opinion, basically disproving the Kassar hypothesis. Moreover, having to hide one's ethnic background just to be treated as normal does not be as a normal. Moreover, having to hide one's ethnic background just to be treated as a normal human being is not a privilege because white people, actual white people, not Jews, don't have to do this. They don't have to change their names or flatten their noses or bleach their skin or strain their hair or take their kibbas off, etc., etc. The fact that Ashkenazim and white passing Jews in general need to work just to be seen as regular people really says it all. And many, if not most, don't even have the ability to do that. It is simply not comparable. From the Greek and Roman colonial era, where we were deemed savages in need of cultural and culture and enlightenment, to the evolution of these views under Christianity, to enlightenment era Europeans openly declaring that we are Asiatics, were therefore currently stagnant and incapable of reason, signs, or progress. Orientalism has always been the bedrock of European anti-Semitism. All that I have stated prove that Jews are indigenous to the Middle East and are not descendants of the Khazars. Globally speaking, all arguments suggested by proponents of the Khazarian theory are either highly speculative or simply wrong. They cannot be taken seriously. This has never been stopped the theory from being popular. Now linking to the fact that all Ashkenazi Jews are not the descendants of Khazars and also 30th cousins. 
An international team of scientists announced on September 9, 2014 that they had come to the conclusion that all Ashkenazi Jews are descended from an original group of about 350 individuals who lived between 600 and 800 years ago. Other sources say uh, 300 individuals, so it could be 300 to 350. It uh, doesn't really matter. The point is that all Jews are 30th, all Ashkenazi Jews are 30th cousins. These people were of Eastern and Middle Eastern European descent. The analysis was done by comparing DNA data of 120 Ashkenazi Jews with the DNA of a reference group of 26 Flemish people from Belgium, and then working out the genetic markers which are unique to people of Ashkenazi descent. The similarities in Ashkenazi genomes allowed the scientists to identify a base point from which all Ashkenazi Jews descend. According to scientists, this effectively makes all modern Ashkenazi Jews 30th cousins, stemming from the same population almost 800 years ago. This discovery may help medical professionals treat genetic diseases because diseases like Tay-Sachs and certain types of cancers are more prevalent in, in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. In order to treat these diseases, doctors will now have a better idea of where to sequence an, sequence an individual's genome to test for disease susceptibility. This discovery also effectively disproves that the idea that Ashkenazi Jews were descended from the Khazars who converted to Judaism during the 8th or 9th centuries CE. Don't get me wrong, the Khazars did convert to Judaism, but they but they died out, and the claims that Ashkenazi Jews are descendants of them are 100% utterly false, as explained before. If you're European Jewish and you meet another another European member of the, of the community, odds are you're 30th cousin. So basically, if you're Ashkenazi Jewish and you meet another Ashkenazi Jew, odds are you're at least 30th cousins. A study concluded. A study concludes that all Ashkenazi Jews can trace their um, ancestry to a bottleneck of just 350 individuals dating back between 600 and 800 years ago. Research analyzed the genomes of 120 Ashkenazi Jews compared to, the, to those of non-Jewish Europeans in order to determine which genetic markers are unique to Ashkenazi Jews. They found that Ashkenazi Jews' genetic similarities were so acute that one of the researchers, Columbia's, Columbia professor Itzik Peer, told the Life Science website that among Ashkenazi Jews, everyone is a 30th cousin. Despite their close ties to Europe, no more than half of the DNA comes from ancient Europeans, the researchers found. Only 46 to 50% of the DNA in the 120 samples originated with the, originated with the group of people who were also the ancestors of the Flemish people in the study. Those ancient people split off from the ancestors of today's Middle Easterners more than 20,000 years ago, with a founding group of about 3,500 to 3,900 people, according to the study. The new work also sheds light on little history of Jewish migration. In the late Middle Ages, Jews were expelled from a number of kingdoms. The Spanish were only a many, one of many by 1492. Before then, the French under Charles the Sixth had issued expulsions order had issued expulsion orders on for Jewish people in 1394. Edward I did the same in 1290. Many of those expelled people ended up in Eastern Europe, forming the core community that would be later be known as the Ashkenazi Jews. The discovery holds perhaps the most significant for doctors and Jewish patients. Just last week, well, not like last week, but like, re, uh, you know, in the past, a new study revealed that all Ashkenazi women, even those without any family history of cancer, may carry the BCRA1 and B, no, may carry the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genetic mutations linked to breast and, and ovarian cancer. The more genetic information available regarding Ashkenazi Jews, the fewer genome sequences doctors need to test and analyze when looking for potential problems or mutations. The findings will enable researchers to catalog nearly all genetic variations from the founding population, the study's author said. 
Um, such a thorough genetic cataloging could help clinicians interpret individual genetic mutations, improve disease mapping, and provide insight into the history of Middle Eastern and European populations, the study said. Because Ashkenazi Jews started because the Ashkenazi community started out so small, they remained genetically isolated, it developed a higher load of disease-carrying mutations, disease-carrying mutations. Because Ashkenazi, the Ashkenazi, <clears throat> because the Ashkenazi Jewish community started out so small and remained genetically isolated, it developed a higher load of disease-carrying mutations. Even today, Ashkenazi Jews are known to be a higher risk for many diseases, including breast and ovarian cancer and Tay-Sachs disease. But many, but many potentially disease-causing Ashkenaz, disease Ashkenazi mutations remain unknown. The author of the new, well, not new. The author of the, the study came from nearly two dozen research groups in New York City, Belgium, and Israel. Many of the co-authors are not Jewish, but they are interested in studying this group because it's genetically isolated. Since Jews have historically married within their faith, the gene pool is closed. That makes it easier to identify genes linked to specific diseases like Parkinson's and cancer. Links that it could apply links that it could apply to non-Jews as well. Now, what will be spoken about is a detailed history of the Ashkenazi Jews. Ashkenazi Jews are known to have origins in Levant, which Israel is in the smack dab middle of. But exactly who European Ashkenazi Jews are have long been debated. An analysis of the gene database shows that Ashkenazi Jews were, were about half European and half Middle Eastern. They lived in the medieval era about 600 to 800 years ago. According to analysis, and numbered just about 500 people, 300 people, 350 people or so, which was spoken about in the last section. Well, while legends abound, it is not entirely clear when Jews began populating the Rhine Valley or where they had come from. Details on liturgy and other clues point to the Holy Land as a possible point in origin. Localism was close to the heart of Northern European Jews who thought of themselves as belonging to a town more than a region. Along, among the earliest Jews residents along the Rhines were the Jews of Mainz, Worms, and Speyer. They migrated for, there from northern France or from Italy, where they had lived for centuries, in some cases as the descendants of the slaves of the, as descendants of the, slaves the Roman conquerors of Jerusalem brought to in Italy in 70 CE. Outside the origins in ancient Israel, the history of the Ashkenazim is shrouded in mystery, and many theories have arisen Arisen, speculating on their emergence as a, a as a distinct community of Jews, the best supported theory is that one of the is one that details a Jewish migration from Israel through what is now Italy and other southern parts of southern Europe. The historical record attests to Jewish communities in southern Europe since pre-Christian times. Many Jews were denied full Roman citizenship citizenship until Emperor Caracalla granted all free peoples this privilege in twelve in two twelve. Jews were required to pay a poll tax until the reign of Emperor Julian in, 16, in, 6, in 363. The, in the late Roman Empire, Jews were free to form networks of cultural and religious ties and enter into various local occupations. But after Christianity became the official religion of Rome and Constantinople in 380, Jews were increasingly marginalized. While there were Ashkenazi Jews in ancient Greece, there no, no trace of them exists above above or east of Germany before the age of the Romans. Through the Roman period and into the Middle Ages, the Ashkenazi Jews migrated from Eastern Europe and into and France. When Charlemagne joined the various kingdoms of France in 80, 800 AD, the history of Ashkenazi Jews started to become well-documented. Charlemagne's expression of the Frankish Empire around 1800, including Northern Italy and Rome, brought on a brief period of stability and unity in Francia. This created opportunities for Jew Jewish merchants to settle again north of the Alps. 
<coughs> Charlemagne granted the Jews freedom similar to those once enjoyed under the Roman Empire. In addition, Jews from southern Italy, fleeing religious persecution, began to move into Central Europe. Europe. Returning to Frankish lands, many Jewish merchants took up occupations in finance and commerce, finance and commerce including money lending or usury. Uh, church legislation banned Christians from lending money in exchange for interest. From Charlemagne's time to present, Jewish life in Northern Europe is well documented. By the 11th century, when Rashi of Troyes wrote commentaries, Jews in what came to be known as Ashkenaz were known for their halakhic learning and Talmudic studies. They were criticized by Spartan and other Jewish scholars in Islamic lands for the lack of expertise in Jewish jurisprudence and the general ignorance of Hebrew linguistics and literature. Yiddish emerged as a result of Judeo-Latin contact with various high German vernaculars in the medieval period. It is a Germanic language written in Hebrew letters and heavily influenced by Hebrew and Aramaic, with some elements of Romance and latter Slavic languages. Historical memory preserved the path from Italy. Historical memory preserved the path from Italy to German lands in later foundations uh, and later foundation legends relating uh, how a King Charles invited Rabbi Moshe ben Kamos from Lucca to Maine. And indeed, there's ample reason to think that that was the case. From the archive of Charlemagne's son, um, Louis, Louis the Pious, we have three Latin charters of privilege that he issued to Jewish international merchants who he encouraged to trade in the empire by offering them incentives of toll exemptions. He also promised them to protection directly from his own court. The private charters of that Lewis issued to the individual Jewish mer merchants became the model for the later, later community charters of protection that began to appear in 1004, 1084 for the newly founded Jewish, Jewish community of Spainer, a Spayer, a spin-off from the early one of Mainz, settled in the late 10th century, and Worms, settled perhaps a few decades later. In his land charter, Ruger, a bishop of Spayer, noticed that he was welcomed he was welcoming Jews who might want to settle in this town. A Hebrew account tells that the, tells that a fire that broke in on Mainz and Jew, Jews there were homeless. Ruhr offered the main Jewish refugees his personal protection, self-government, and even a strong wall around the area of settlement, so their Christian commercial competitors in town would not be tempted to harm their new Jewish neighbors. Ruger invited them to settle in Spare because he thought the Jews could help him increase the prestige of Spare by making a village into a town. Historical records of evidence, historical records showed evidence of Jewish communities north of Alps and Pyrenees as early as the 8th and 9th century. But, that, but, but, but by the 11th century, Jewish settlers moving from southern European and Middle Eastern centers appeared to have begun to settle in the north, especially along the Rhine, in response to new economic opportunities at the invitation of local Christian rulers. Thus, Baldwin V, Count of Flanders, invited Jacob ben Yukitel and, and his fellow Jews to settle on his lands. And soon after Norman conquest in England, William the Conqueror likewise extended a welcome to the continental Jews to take up residence there. Bishop Rizuzer Rudiger Huzman called on the Jews of Maine to really collect despair. In all these decisions, the idea that Jews had the know-how and capacity to jumpstart the economy, improve revenues, and a large, and a large trade seemed to, seems to play a prominent role. Typically, Jews relocated close to markets and churches in town centers, where, though they came under the authority of both royal and escalatic powers, they were recorded, they were recorded administrative autonomy. Beginning around the 10th century, the Jewish communities straddling France and southern Germany rose to prominence as a learned and vital center of Jewish life. As Jews in Ashkenaz suffered successive waves of murderous crusades, 
Talmud Burning, the Talmud's like a Jewish book, massacres and severe oppression, they made their way to the more welcoming lands to the east. Their Ashkenazi life flourished, and Yiddish, a concoction of G German, Hebrew, and Aramaic, and more, became the dominant language of the Jews of Eastern Europe until the du double scourges of Nazism and Communism conspired to kill millions of Jews and squelch the Jewish identity and of millions of others. In the 10th and 11th century, the first Ashkenazim, Jewish merchants in France and Ger Germany, were economic pioneers, treated well because of their trading connections with the Mediterranean and the East. Jewish communities appeared in many urban centers. Early Ashkenaz communities were small homogenous. Until Christian, Christian guilds were formed, Jews were craftsmen and artisans. In France, many Jews owned vineyards and made wine. They carried arms and knew how, knew how to use them in self-defense. The Jews of each town constituted an independent self-governing entity. Each community, or kahal, established its own regulations made up by an elected board and judicial courts. They enforced their rulings with the threat of excommunication. The Ashkenazim generally shied away from outside influences and concentrated on internal Jewish sources, ideas, and customs. Ashkenazim focused on biblical and Talmudic studies. Centers of rabbinical scholarship appeared in the 10th century in Maine and Worms and, and in the Rhineland and Troyes and Saints in the France. Ashkenazi scholarship centered around oral discussion. Sages focused on understanding the munite of text instead of extracting general principles. Principles. The most famous early teacher was Rabbeinu Gershom of Ains. Some of his decrees, such that forbidding polygamy, are still in existence today. The first major Ashkenazi literary figure was Rashi, Solomon ben Itzach of Troyes, who lived from 1040 to 1105, whose commentaries on the Bible and Talmud are considered fundamental to Jewish study. The Tzolfis, Ashkenazi Talmudic scholars in northern France and Germany, introduced new methods and insights into Talmudic study that are also still in use. Early Ashkenazi Jewish comp composed religious poetry modeled after 5th and century, century Petuim, liturgical poems, while pre-liturgy varied even among Ashkenazi countries. The differences were almost insignificant compared to the differences between Spartan and Ashkenazi liturgy. Many other rulers invited Jews into Northern Europe in the 11th and 12th centuries and confined their protection and utility to the kingdom, usually as international merchants with similar community charters. During these times, Jews and Christians generally got along, and the settled life in towns like Mainz and, Mainz and the Ryland or Troyes in the county of Tram Champagne saw the emergence of an early rabbinic elite that was part of the commercial middle class the Jewish settlers were forming. Among these merchant rabbis was the first major leader in Ashkenaz, Rabbeinu, our rabbi, Gershom ben Yehuda, later called the Light of Exile, who died in 1028. Gershom's fame lies in two decisions he made regarding the protection of married Jewish women, contradicting both Tamilic president and in Jewish and Jewish practice in Muslim lands. Gershom ruled that a Jewish man in Ashkenaz could be only married to one wife at a time, even if he was living abroad for a year or more on business trips and was tempted, and was tempted to start another family there. Commercial reality of Jewish life was a context for Gershom's ruling, designed to, to provide a wife back home from being neglected or even abandoned. His second innovative ruling that was a Jewish husband can no longer divorce his wife without her consent. In the 11th and 12th century, uh, different rabbinic genres emerged in parallel, science, parallel to signs of spiritual renewal in Christian Europe. In the middle of this creativity, a traumatic event took place, generating a religious ideology that not that would shape not, not just the elite that constructed it, but also the entire culture of Ashkenaz for all time. In small rabbinical circles in Northern Europe, Rabbi Shlomo ben Yitzhak Troyes, who died in 1105, known, also known as Rashi, 
wrote his running commentary on most of the Hebrew Bible and to the Babylonian Talmud. They're still what both widely studied today. Rashi's grandsons, especially the extraordinary Yaakov ben Meir of Ramut, known as Rabbein Utam, who died in 1171, built a major intellectual palace of synthesis on the basis of Rashi's Talmudic commentary by far-flung passages from the Talmud, noting contradictions and proposing solutions in scholastic fashion making by making decisions. The intellectual achievements of these Tosafatists, Talmudic glossators, resulted in expansion of new categories of Jewish law and practice, in effect making a formerly Mediterranean and Islamic Jew culture into the Jewish culture of Northern Christian Europe or Ashkenaz. In the Rhineland town of Speyer, the sons of the founding family of Italian Jews, the communities of Luca, took umbrage at the innovation land of Yaakov's Tam, expansion of distinctions and new practices that fall from them, and insisted instead on following a regime of venerable pietistic behavior that harkened back to the ancient Palestine and Italy, origins of early Ashkenazic religious culture. The pietistic Ashkenaz, uh, which is combining religious Jewish belief with the fact that you can live on individual piety in terms of Jewish religion, like Rabbeinu, like Rabbi Shmuel ben Kaimos and his son Rabbi Huda ben Shmuel the Pietist, who died in 1217, contributed, contributed to the Sefer Hasidim, Book of the Pietist, an, anth an anthology of parables, ancient customs, extelchic comments, and hom hom homilies, all built around the possibility that some Jews could be religious virtues and live Asiatic lives, even though married with children by avoiding pleasures of their families. 24 independent pleasure by sitting in icy rivers in the winter of covered or covered with honey on anthills in the summer all fo all to focus the devotion to God in a heroic way uh, okay I kind of agree with that but uh, okay although we uh, do not have any evidence that such Jewish, Jewish groups actually practice Judaism this way in Germany during the period of religious sect or fellowship Sefer Sidism has survived in dozens of complete and fra fragmentary manuscripts the longevity and test to the popularity of the piastic way of life, not only as, a, as an ideal, but also religious practice in later Euro European, Eastern European Judaism. But a more joyful alternative regimen challenged it in the form of modern Hasidism. While Ashkenazi Jews exper occasionally experienced anti-Semitism, mob violence first erupted at the, against them at the end of the 11th century. Many Jews were killed in what Robert Seltzer calls a supercharged religious atmosphere. Melling, many were willing to to die as majors rather than convert. In the 12th and 13th centuries, many Ashkenazi Jews became moneylenders. They were supported by the secular rulers who benefited from taxes imposed on Jews. The rulers did not totally protect them, however, and blood libel cropped up accompanied by violence. In 1182, Jews were expelled from France. Ashkenazi Jews uh, continued to build up communities in Germany until they faced riots and massacres in the 1200s and 1300s. Some Jews moved to Swati, Spain, while others set up Ashkenazi communities in Poland. At the same time, Rashi was writing his commentaries on the Bible and Talmud in northern France. Christian knights and mobs brutally attacked the early settlements of Ashkenazi Jewry, especially Mainz, Worms, Speyer, and Cologne. Pope Urban, Urban II's speech in November 1905, launching the armed pilgrimage to Jerusalem that became known as the First Crusade, provoked anti-Jewish riots in the spring of 10. 10 96 in German town. Some Jews died in the streets or on their houses. Others acted to prevent the Christians from even coming near them and kill their own families and, com and then committed suicide as, as committed suicides of acts of religious heroism. Through the stories uh, and prayers that some survivors wrote after the riots, a major culture was constructed as an ideal for later emulation. Jews and Ashkenaz should not be ready to take their own lives rather than lives under the cross rather than live under the cross. 
In addition to memorizing the story, memorializing the story of Jewish martyrdom and Maine women's fair, other Jews compiled lists of majors' names and read them out loud in synagogue on the anniversary of the original massacre in each town. Numerous massacres of Jews occurred throughout Europe during the Christian Crusade. Inspired preaching by the preaching of a French First Crusade, Crusader mobs in France and Germany perpetuated Rhineland massacres of 1096, devastating Jewish communities along the Rhine River, including the Schum communities of Speyer, Worms, and Maine. The cluster of cities contained the earliest Jewish settlements north of the Alps and played a major role in the formation of Ashkenazi Jewish religious tradition, along with choice and sense in France. Nonetheless, Jews and Jewish life in Germany persisted, while some Ashkenazi Jews joined Sephardic Jewry in spring. Expulsions from England, 1290, France, 1394, parts of Germany, 15th century, gradually pushed Ashkenazi Jewry eastward to Poland, 10th century, Lithuania, 10th century, and Russia, 12th century. Over this period of several hundred years, some have suggested Jewish economy, economic activity was focused on trade, business management, and financial services, through to several presumed factors. Christian European prohibitions restricting activities, certain activities by Jews, preventing certain financial activities such as Ursus loans, between Christians, high rates of literacy, near universal male education, and ability of merchants to rely upon and trust family members living in different regions of the country. The result of events of 1096 and the preservation of in a cult of the mature dead was that later generations considered uh, being a mature a religious ideal. From the cult of the mature of 1906 developed a broader set of practices designed to remember one own family um, dead, even if they're not descended from the communities that experienced violence in 1096. These two sets of practices in Judaism are parallel to the customs of all saints and all souls in the Catholic Church. For example, Jews began to light candles in connection with marking the anniversary of the dead, as Christian monks did when they marked the anniversary of a dead, a bot, or monk. In Ashkenaz piety, more than in Sephardic custom, Jews recited memorial praise for the dead four times a year, not just on the Day of Atonement as before, but also on festivals. They also began to recite the cash prayer for the dead on the anniversary of one's parents, that's in a custom called Yortzeit, or Yortzeit, and developed other memorial practices such as visiting, visiting cemeteries to commune with the dead at different times of the year. Despite the impacts of 1096 had on the memory um, had on the collective memory of early Ashkenaz, for the next 100, 200 years, Jews lived in relatively, peace, lived relatively peacefully with their Christian neighbors. There was no age of the Crusades of constant persecution in Ashkenaz. Even when a Christian cleric in Norwich, England, in the mid-12th century, invented the, the lie that Norwich Jews had ritually crucified a Christian boy in order to create a local Christian saint, no anti-Jewish riots accompanied the accusation. Between 1906 and the late 13th century, uh, most Jews seem to have lived side by side with their Christian neighbors. If they did not respect another, one another, each understood how the other lived. They shopped in the same markets, lived on the same streets, and were even aware of one another's religious holiday and customs. Since we are talking about settlements of at least, at most of 2,000 people, and most frequently, more frequently tiny towns of a few hundred, it was only in the late 13th century that some Christian kings tired in their control over Jewish life in Europe. The king of England expelled his Jews, perhaps 2,000 people, in 1290, and the, king of, and the king of France expelled his, possibly 80,000 in 1306. There were probably, there were probably, there, there probably were as many Jews, as many French Jews forced into exile in 1306 as were Iberian, 
the Jews expelled from Castile and Aragon in 1492. Major episodes of violence became common in Ashkenaz in the late 13th century. Peaking in the middle of the 14th century, when Jews were accused of poisoning wells to bring about the Black Pandemic, Black, Black Death Pandemic that wiped out as much as 50% of the population in parts of Northern Europe. Jews who tried to preserve their cultural identity did so not by segregating themselves from the Christian neighbors, but by figuring out how to observe Judaism in ways that transformed elements from the environment into Jewish practice. They did this through language, Jews, through memorization customs, yortite, liaskor lamps, and even creating customs that mimic the sacred moments of Christ, the Church of the Trinity, but transformed them into Jewish rites of passage. Thus, a Jewish boy was initiated in human literacy in a custom that developed in the 12th century in northern France and Ashkenaz. He was brought to the teacher where he was told to lick honey that had spread on the, an alphabet tablet and to eat honey cakes on which biblical verses had been written, had, on which biblical verses had written as well as similarly inscribed hard-boiled eggs. In descriptions of the new custom, the round honey cakes were held aloft in almost the exact documentation of how the Christian priests held up the concentrated hose during the celebration of the Mass, after which a faithful communion took by ingesting sweet wafers. When a Jewish boy of Ashkenaz ate the honey cake on which Torah verses had been written, he was internalizing and incorporating Judaism, but in a form that was a polemical reply to the surrounding Christian culture in which he would have to live as a Jew. By the 15th century, Ashkenazi Jewish communities in Poland were the largest Jewish communities of the diaspora. This area, which eventually fell under the domination of Russia, Austria, and Prussia, Germany, remained the main center of Ashkenazi Jewry until the Holocaust. The center of Ashkenazi Jewry switched, shifted to Poland, Lithuania, Bohemia, and Moravia in the beginning of the 16th century. Jews were, for the first time, concentrated in Eastern Europe instead of Western Europe. Polish Jews adopted the uh, Ashkenazi rites, liturgy, and religious customs of the German Jews, uh, but at that time, Pol uh, Polish Jews were not considered Ashkenaz. The, the Ashkenazi Machsor holiday prayer book included prayers composed by poets of Germany and northern France. In Poland, the Jews became physical agents, tax collectors, estate managers for the noblemen, merchants, and craftsmen. In the 1500s to 1600s, Polish Jewry came to be the largest Jewish community in the diaspora. Many Jews lived in Stadel, small towns where the majority of inhabitants were Jewish. They set up kihot like those in the Middle Ages that elected a board of trustees to collect taxes, set up, kihot, uh, uh, set up education systems, and deal with other necessities of Jewish life. The Jews even had their own craft guilds. Each kahal had where boys of over the age of 13 learned Talmudic, Talmudic and Rabbinic texts. Yiddish was the language of oral translation and the discussion of Torah and Talmud. Ashkenazi scholars focused on carefully on careful readings of the text and also on summarizing legal interpretations of former Ashkenazi and Sephardi scholars of Jewish law. Ashkenazim focused on Hebrew, Torah, and especially Talmud. They used religion to protect themselves from outside influences. The Jews at this time were largely middle class. By choice, they mostly lived in self-contained communities surrounding their synagogue and other communal institutions. Yiddish was the common language of Ashkenazi Jews in the Eastern and Central Europe. In Eastern and Central Europe, with the start of the Renaissance and religious wars in the late 16th century, a divide grew between the Central and Eastern European Jews. In Central Europe, particularly Germany, rulers forced the Jews to live apart from the rest of society in ghettos, with between 100 and 500 inhabitants. The ghettos were generally clean and in condition. Eastern European Jews lived in shtetls, where Jews and Gentiles lived side by side. From the 16th century, certain differences in the approach to Talmudic studies, as well as liturgical and linguistic decision, decisions, distinctions, <coughs> arose within Ashkenaz Jewry. 
at least by the 17th century, if not earlier, one might speak of a Polak in contra on contradistinction to an Ashkenazi Jew. The later term, in other words, reverted in some measure to its earlier denotation of a Jew in German lands. Nevertheless, Ashkenazi Jew by the 17th century Ashkenaz Jewry by the 17th century was conterminous to those who spoke Yiddish in its various dialects and followed Moses Eisler's glosses to the Halakhic Code, Shlokhan Moreover, for Sephardic and Oriental Jews, our European Jews were Ashkenazic. In 16 and 1700, Jews in Poland, the center of Ashkenazi Jewry, faced blood libels and riots. The growth of Hasidism in Poland drew many Jews away from typical Ashkenazi practice. After the Chameki massacres in Poland in 1648, Polish Jews spread throughout Western Europe and some even crossing the Atlantic. Many Polish Jews fled to Amsterdam and joined previously ex existing communities of German Jews. Sephardim there considered the Ashkenazim to be socially and culturally inferior. While the Sephardim were generally wealthy, the Ashkenazim were poor peddlers, petty traders, artisans, diamond, polish diamond polishers, jewelry workers, and silversmiths. As the Sephardim became poorer in the 18th century, the communities became more equal and united. Eventually, the mass, vast majority of Ashkenazi Jews relocated to the Polish Commonwealth. Today, it's Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Ukraine, Ukraine, and Belarus, where princes welcomed their skilled and educated workforce. The small pre-existing pre Poland Jewish community customs were displaced by the Ashkenazic prayer order customs and Yiddish language. The Jewish community of England also changed in the 1700s. It, it has primarily been Sephardi through the 1600s, but became more Ashkenazi in culture as growing numbers of German and Polish Jews arrived. In 1740, a family from Lithuania became the first Ashkenazi Jews to settle in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem. By 1750, out of 2,500 2, Jews living in the American colonies, the majority was Ashkenazi. The, the Jews were Yiddish-speaking Jews from the Netherlands, Germany, Poland, and England. The first Jews were merchants and traders. Since then, Ashkenazi Jews have built up communities throughout the United States. In the generations of the emigration from the West, Jewish communities in places like Poland, Russia, and Belarus enjoyed a comparatively stable social-political environment. A thriving public publishing industry and printing of hundreds of biblical commentaries precipitated the development of a Hasidic movement as well as many major Jewish academic centers. In the context of the, the European Enlightenment, Jewish emancipation began in the 18th century France and spread throughout Western and Central Europe. Disabilities that eliminated the rights of Jews since the Middle Ages were abolished including the requirements to wear distinctive clothing, pay special taxes, and live in ghettos isolated from non-Jewish communities, and the prohibitions on certain professions. Laws were passed to integrate Jews into their host countries, forcing Ashkenazi Jews to um, adopt family names. They have formerly used patronymics. Newfound inclusion into public life led to cultural growth in the Hazka, or Jewish alignment, with its goals in integrating modern European values into Jewish life. As a re re reaction to increasing anti-Semitism and salvation following the emancipation, Zionism was developed in Central Europe. Other Jews, particularly those in the Palestine settlement, turned to socialism. These tendencies would, would be united in labor Zionism, the founding ideology of the State of Israel. Jewish life and learning thrived in northeastern Europe. The yeshiva culture of Poland, Russian, Russia, and Lithuania produced a constant stream of new Talmudic scholarship. The 18th century Germany, the Halakha movement advocated for modernization, including the modern denominations and institutions of secular Jewish culture. By the end of the 19th century, a as, a, as a result of Russian persecution, there was a massive Ashkenazi emigration from Eastern Europe to other areas of Europe, Australia, South Africa, the United States, and Israel. 
Ashkenazim are now numerous Farnum everywhere except North Africa, Italy, the Middle East, and parts of Asia. Before World War II, Ashkenazim comprised 90% of world Jewry. After two centuries of comparative tolerance in the new nations, massive westward emigration in, occurred in the 19th and 20th centuries in response to programs and pogroms in the East and economic to opportunities in other parts of, offered in other parts of the world. Ashkenazi Jews have made up the majority of American Jewish communities since 1750. Of the estimated 8.8 .8 million Jews living in Europe at the beginning of the of World War II, the majority of whom were Ashkenazi, about 6 million, more than two-thirds, were systematically mur murdered in the Holocaust, which is sad and affected a lot of people today, and very sad. These included 3.3 million of 3 million of 3.3 million Polish Jews, 91% of the population, 900,000 of 1.5 million Jews in Ukraine, 60% of the population, and 50 to 90% of Jews of other Slavic nations. Germany, Hungary, and the Baltic states, and over 25% of the Jews in France. Sephardi communities suffered similar depletions in few countries, including Greece, the Netherlands, and the former Yugoslavia. As large as the large majority of victims were Ashkenazi Jews, the percentage dropped from an estimated 92% of world Jewry made, world Jewry made in 1930 to nearly 80% of world Jewry today. The Holocaust also effectively put an end to the dynamic development of the Yiddish language in the previous decades. And as the, as the vast majority of the Jewish victims of the Holocaust, around 5 million, were Yiddish speakers. Many of the surviving Ashkenazi Jews emigrated to countries such as Israel, Canada, Argentina, Australia, and the United States after the war. The destruction of European Jewry in World War II reduced the number of Ashkenazim and, to some extent, their numeric superiority over the Sephardim. The United States became the main center for Ashkenazi Jew, Jews and still is to this day. Following the Holocaust, some sources place Ashkenazim today as making up approximately 83 to 85% of the Jews world of Jews worldwide, while Sergio de Pergola, in a rough calculation of Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews, implies that Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Jews make up a noticeably lower figure, less than 74%. Other estimates place Ashkenazi Jews as making up about 75% of Jews worldwide. Now, what will be discussed is Ashkenazi Jews in Israel, the, the Jewish state. In Israel, the term Ashkenazi is now used in a manner unrelated to its original meaning, often applied to Jews who settle in Europe and sometimes whose ethnic background is actually Sephardic. Jews of non-Ashkenazi background, including Mizrahi, Yemenite, Kurdish, and other Jews who have no connection with the Iberian Peninsula, as I mentioned many times before, have similarly come to be lumped together as Sephardic. Jews of mixed backgrounds are increasingly common, particularly because of intermarriage between Ashkenazi and non-Ashkenazi, and partly because many do not see such historic markers as relevant to the lives, to the life experience as Jews. But religious Ashkenazi Jews living in Israel are obliged to follow the authority of the chief Ashkenazi rabbi in halachic matters, uh, which is like matters of Jewish law. In respect, a religious Ashkenazi Jew is an Israeli who is Israeli is, is an Israeli who is more likely. In this respect, a religiously Ashkenazi Jew is, a, is, a, is an Israeli who is more likely to support certain religious interests in Israel, including certain political parties. These political parties result from the fact that a portion of the Israeli electorate votes for Jewish religious parties. Although ele the electoral map changes from one election to another, there are general several small parties associated with the interests of religious Ashkenazi Jews. The role of religious parties including small religious parties that play important roles as coalition members, results in turns 
from Israel's composition is a complex society in which competing social, economic, and religious interests tend for the election to the Knesset, a unicameral legislature with 120 seats. Ashkenazi Jews have played a prominent role in the economy, media, and politics of Israel since its founding. During the first decades of Israel as a state, Strong cultural conflict occurred between Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews, mainly European Ashkenaz East European Ashkenazim, as opposed to Ashkenazim from Central Western Europe. The roots of this conflict, which still exists to a much smaller extent in the present-day Israeli society, are chiefly attributed to the concept of the melting pot. That is to say, all Jewish immigrants who arrived in Israel were strongly encouraged to melt down their own particular exilic identities within the general pot in order to become Israeli. In 2018, 31.8% of Israeli Jews self-identified as Ashkenazi, in addition to 12.4% being immigrants from the former USSR, a majority of whom self-identify as Ashkenazi Jews. Now, the final section of the episode, where I will be explaining uh, my personal experiences as an Ashkenazi Jew and concluding off the episode. Uh... Now I will be explained as a short biography of explaining myself as an Ashkenazi Jew. I was born in Toronto, Ontario, Canada as Eric Ackerman as my legal name with no middle name. My Hebrew name is Aryeh, meaning lion, but it is, it is not tied to any naming factors of Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Judaism. It is just a general Hebrew name that my parents gave to me when I was born. Eric is just a general Germanic Latin name, not sure about that, as, but it's not important to this section because it does not relate to anything about me as about being about me being Ashkenazi, but relates more to my personal family history. If you want to know more about why my name is Eric, just send me a DM or an email. My last name Ackerman comes from my grandpa on my dad's side, which was a village in Ukraine, as I was told by my mom, and it is a very Ashkenazi name. Although I heard that in some non that some non Jews, most in Europe, as my dad says, have Ackerman as a last name. Ackerman in general refers to Acker, which refers to the fact of farmers working the land. So Ackerman refers to the fact that a farmer man is working the land. Ackerman in my case refers to the village that my grandma knew or grew up in, but I'm not so sure about that. I'm not I'm an Ashkenazi Jew who has very diverse origins. My mom my mom's mom is from actual Russia, not the USSR during gen, in general during the Cold War, like actual Russia, like modern Russia what it is today. My mom's dad is from Moldova. My dad's mom is from Germany and my dad's dad is from Ukraine. Growing up, my parents didn't really go to synagogue, Jewish prayer place, with me, or went when, when, when I was very little, and I do not remember anything. Way back in the day, around my early days, when my parents did talk to rabbi for ritualistic Jewish stuff, they usually did it in Ashkenazi fashion, because the rabbis who the, who ran the rituals were Ashkenazi. My parents aren't observant, aren't that observant, so they would only do the big stuff, such as the holidays. So I would have Ashkenazi food, such as give out the fish, pickled herring fillets, beef brisket, Russian salad, such as potato and beet, along with chicken soup and borscht. I definitely wasn't eating Sephardic, I definitely was not eating Sephardic or Mizrahi food in the house during the Jewish holidays, as you know, I'm Ashkenazi Jew. However, since my parents grew up in Israel, they were brought up in a general Israeli culture as opposed to Ashkenazi, which, which permeated to me whenever I pronounced words in Ashkenazi fashion, he, words in Hebrew in an Ashkenazi fashion. They'd be like, oh, yo, why are you pronouncing like that way? Even though my people, the Ashkenazim, have been pronouncing certain words in Hebrew in a certain way for generations. It's because I heard rabbi, rabbis and friends pronouncing things in the Ashkenazi fashion, which got me exposed to the pronunciation. Going to Israel two times now has exposed me to the fact that, in general, Hebrew is not spoken 
spoken or pronounced in the Ashkenazi way because of the fact that most of the Israeli population is Mizrahi and they do not pronounce Hebrew in the Ashkenazi fashion. And the fact that Israel's in the Middle East, you know, it just wouldn't fit in. You now Israel's in the Middle East, so they, you know, they have like a Middle Eastern way of saying Hebrew. So, uh, yeah. In terms of myself, I personally go to a Chabad synagogue on Shabbat, which is Ashkenazi, kind of. Uh, I can explain that in another episode way down the line or side episode. But, uh, yeah, that's not really the point here. So the point is I personally go to Chabad synagogue, which is mostly Ashkenazi, but Chabad's also a little bit Sephardic. I read an article about it, but uh, yeah, if you want to learn more about that, I will be linking that in the description below in the description. I'll be putting a link about that in the description. So I do everything in the Ashkenazi fashion, and I'm eating more Ashkenazi food because I go there. Ashkenazi foods I've eaten slash gone as supposed to because I went to Chabad, are Cholent, Kugel, Cabbage, Bagels and Lox, Fish Bread, Various Fish Dishes, and Kishka. Kishka is not from Chabad, but another Ashkenazi synagogue that I went to. So yeah, so me by me going to these synagogues, like I, uh, you know, I was I, I was exposed to more Ashkenazi food than what I eat at home, and uh, yeah, I'm also used to the fact that some Jews who, that some Jews were Ashkenazi that I did talk to did not live in Israel and have retained their Ashkenazi culture because they have not lived in Israel. So yeah, that is my personal experience as an Ashkenazi Jew. Side note, just like a side note at the end of the episode, although kind of not important, there are subgroups of Ashkenazi Jews that di are from different areas of Europe. They differ, they differ ever so slightly from each other, but they are basically the same as they are all Ashkenazi Jews. Today and even in the past, the difference didn't matter as they all have the same culture of being Ashkenazi Jews. As opposed to the Sephardic Jews, which will be covered next episode, who are split up to a higher degree than the Ashkenazi Jews. And the subgroups of Sephardim have very have um, different customs um, from each other as opposed to the Ashkenazim who lived in geographic separate areas but basically had the same customs. If you want to learn more about these very specific subgroups, I will be putting links of topics of further reading mentioned and not mentioned in this episode in the description. On the next episode, I'll be talking about Sephardic Jews, a group of Jews originating from the Iberian Peninsula and later migrating to other parts of Europe, Africa, and the Americas coming out on April 12th. Peace out and until next time, this is the Worldwide Jew signing off.